three, two, one. Let's, Let's go! go! Yeah! <laughs> Joseph Craster coming in hot. That you fooled me, you see? Did I? You fooled me. You said, I'm not, I'm kind of laid back, you know? I'm going to kind of sit back. I'm not, I don't have much aggression. And then you came through with some. You got me, I might man. Have been louder than you there. Damn it. Should we redo that? No. <laughs> one take, wonder here. <laughs> All right, I am the host of the PB Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined by Joseph Craston. He will introduce himself in a minute. First, and this show is all about these legendary oil field socks from Trunkline, as Joseph Craston is the creator, the, the visionary, the executor. You know, they talk about in business, you got to have vision, you got to have technicians, you got to have management. That's what uh, provides a successful business. You are all three of those things. You have been all three of those things. You created Trunkline. You des- helped design these socks. Uh, and we'll talk about more of that show. But for, uh, we, we just, uh, on behalf of PBE, thank you so much for the sponsorship, the belief in what, what we're doing here, uh, the excitement behind the geology, you know, learning together about more of the rocks and how these reservoirs work. Mm. And then, you know, being a, a voice in the industry that's, that's integrating us from ideas to operators who are the executioners, to the service companies who are the executioners, like, okay, that's your idea, let's go put it in place. And through time, we learn who's doing it better, who's more reliable, what are the best companies. Trunkline's kind of capturing that super vital information for operators to stay on the success train and to keep going efficiently and safely and, and getting good returns for the company. like. It's all tying in there with Trunkline. I uh, appreciate the sponsorship more than you know. Uh, all right, man, Joseph Krasta, what uh, elevator pitch, man? Who are you? Where are you from? Joseph Krasta, founder of Trunkline, based in Midland, Texas. Been in Midland about five years now, originally from Dallas. I am an oil field engineer, um, the founder of Trunkline, I, although I've had many awesome people over the years help out with the company and help out with the socks and help out with all kinds of things. But now we're in a really great spot. Uh, we've got a search engine, trunkline.com, anything oil field product or service related, you can find it and you can browse it. So, uh, happy to be here. Right on, man. Happy to have you. Yeah. Learned a lot from you today about the internet, you know, about, uh, hockey, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the evolution of, uh, the, the enforcers kind of not being a, a thing anymore, thing of the past, it's more about technique and skill and, right. uh, showmanship of, you know, right. flashy moves and stuff. That's kind of where the, the industry's going there. Uh, but really, you know, learning that trunk line through just simple, like uh, pipeline terminology, the trunk line is where all the little lines are coming in to get you know, the, the main source in or out of the system. And, and that's why trunk line is called trunk line. I I thought that was fascinating. I didn't know that. I I never thought to even ask that question until today, but then just kind of getting your ideas and getting behind a little bit of your philosophy of kind of analyzing or identifying a problem and building tools to solve the problem. Uh, not just focused on the tools and tech, you know, and mastering that for, for some problem that might exist somewhere, but you really identifying the problem and mm-hmm. then building a tool uh, to solve the problem. And it's the communication in our industry or in really any industry. 
You're building relationships person to person is a real thing. That has to happen. It's never going to change. We're always going to find people that we get along with. Hey, let's go get some drinks. Let's go get breakfast. And they happen to do something in the oil fields that you use commonly as an operator, but you also get along. Those are real relationships. And you're going to have right. friends and you're going to build you know, a career doing that. And you're going to build lifelong friends in this industry. That's how that works. But at the end of the day, as an operator, certainly, um, you, you have to get a return on your investment. You have to do very well for your company. And so how do you do that? You get bids. You create competition between companies, and you find out who's doing the best work, who's going to get the job done the fastest, the safest, and at a reasonable, at a good price, right? And that's that trunk line is starting. That's that trunk line of of oil field services to operators and operators to the service companies and so there's more to the relationship that in-person relationship that everybody gets everybody's doing in our industry there's more to it and you're bringing that in that's that's pretty cool yeah i think if you're working for an operator chances are really high that for some service category you don't have any options that, or there are, there are service categories or product categories for which you aren't happy with your current options. Right. Uh, that's, that's a pretty li high likelihood. And, and so if you find yourself in that scenario and you want to find more options, again, we've talked about tanks, fabrication, engineering, inspection, you can go down the list, whatever it is, Trunkline will help you find it. Trunkline will help you find the companies that offer that thing. It'll help you find where they're located what projects or what work they've done in the past and it'll put you directly in touch with them without waiting for them to provide you any more details so super easy and efficient and it's a direct connection to the the service providers that can help you build your infrastructure you talked about potentially a paradigm shift in the internet oh yeah phase one phase two phase three we're coming to the end of phase three is there a phase four are we thinking about it completely wrong here? What's missing? What is this paradigm shift of the internet and its infiltration to human beings and, and uh, you know, uh, whatever, right? Our, our uh, ability to operate. Like, what is this paradigm shift? Where are you at with this? Talk to me. I think the answer has to do with artificial intelligence. Wow. Which, which, is, which is a topic that I have a pretty controversial opinion on. But Whoa, let's hear it, man. Okay, so the theory is that artificial intelligence, either now or sometime in the future, will get so advanced that it will be able to control itself and thus wreak havoc on civilization or um, you know, anything that, that we've built. I don't think that's going to happen, ever. Hmm. The, the reality about computers is that they only do what they're told to do, period. <laughs> They don't have a mind of their own. They can't make a mind of their own. They can only do what they're told to do. So we can, we can tell them what to do in a very, very, very advanced way that, that to where they sort of create their own instructions, but it's only doing what we programmed them to do. So I think computers will always be limited by humans, and that's a good thing. Mm. There will never be true artificial intelligence uh, in the scary sci-fi way that we all think uncontrollable about. taking over the planet stuff right. right because that would mean that computers would have to think for themselves and they can't do that 
Okay. They won't ever be able to do that. Won't ever be able to do that. That's my opinion. But I think that phase four of the internet is has something to do with very advanced uh, artificial intelligence uh, where it's so well programmed that it, it almost knows what you're searching for uh, much earlier than it does now, if that makes sense. Right now, Google has to wait for you to type out your, your query and then it searches for you. Well, phase four of the internet, as we were talking about, is probably where it predicts what you're searching for before you finish. Ah. Something like that. That's kind of where I think things are going. Okay. So was, it's faster. Yeah. I was thinking kind of the same thing. Like, uh, you know, you can go into a, a Google satellite image of the whole city of San Antonio, right? And you're looking at Google image and you're like, that's not very overwhelming. You know, that's a big, massive city. And I see all this chaos. But at the end of the day, it's kind of, that's it, it, what is the internet and humans in the sense that you can look at Google and the computer can start identifying all of the oil and gas service companies by name, mm-hmm. right? Or by some, some criteria that's Googleable, bang, it starts building out this list and based on its name and, and it says on the website that it's a pipeline company, it can, it can start pulling all its ideas from other well-known and well-described pipeline companies and now it can suggest to the human that's, that happens to be talking about pipelines, looking for pipelines, searching for pipelines in the area that, hey, here's a company and based on some of these key things that it says on the website, it mm. might have what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's getting to that point already, and that's just a function of how uh, tr- how well trained the the search engine is getting. Wow. It gets trained over time by aggregating more and more data and more and more search results, more and more information about you and I who are searching, and it's just it's just logging all of that sort of history, and then drawing back on that history right. to suggest things in the future. So it's a matter of time relating it to your current, you know, your immediate need. Yeah. And it, it can search, it can find. So I think right? that's, that's the key for phase four, what I'm calling phase four of the internet, where it just, it's faster, really. It's, it's smarter, but it's not, it, it doesn't have its own intelligence. It just has a bigger library of data to pull from. Yeah. Yep. And it's more efficient. Yep. We'll see. Yeah. Could be wrong. I, yeah, I don't know. I think that's 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 logical next step. I mean, I don't understand artificial intelligence in the sci-fi way. I really don't see how that's possible. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, but that's good to know. Unless we find a breakthrough in like, you know, computers or silicon chips or Memory. What about uh, what about this idea that you put a chip in your head and it can help you like uh, <laughs> right the the computer chip can help uh, help your vision or help your hearing or maybe help you uh, be less uh, depressed thoughts maybe it's more happy thoughts you know it's like influencing the way yeah. a human thinks and operates that's different uh, and that's scary yeah if it's influencing. If you're if you're subjecting yourself to it, right, that's different. I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. No, 
No. What if no. you can? What if you you put a computer chip in your head and it could take you to like dreamland? And you're like you're in a dream state. You know that like with some some random times in your dreams, you like feel like you're in control. You're like, whoa, I'm dreaming. So like maybe let's go to like a roller coaster ride right now. Like in my dream, you ever get those dreams? You ever get those moments where Can't it's like say seems? I do. Is that right? You never yeah. had one of those dreams where you feel like it's controllable? No. Or you at least that was a thing. you try to control a dream. You're like, mm. oh, I feel like I'm dreaming, and you're like, I am dreaming. No, no. I mean, I always me. wake up like after the fact and it's already done. It's played out. It's played out. You don't. What if you can go back? What if the chips can take you back? Would you do that? I mean, that would be cool. But you, then you're sub, you're giving control over to this right. unknown who right. controls it. Who's can in you charge? get out of it? How do you can, get out? Yeah, of it? Not worth the risk. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Not worth well it. Well said. Yeah. No, I mean. Life can be hard at times, but I mean, you don't know, like grass isn't greener on the other side. I, I don't think yeah. in that sense, you, you want to stay in control. And I wouldn't imagine the benefit of handing that over to someone else, anyone. Wow. So, yeah. But I'm sure it's going to happen. I'm sure of that. I think we're in a time, my, my opinion is, I think we're in a time where the industry is pivoting. Like, uh, you know, the, the older generation had a very specific, and they'll even, they're proud of it. It's kind of based on like military style running of things. They think mm -hmm. hierarchy, when they think of a company, one head, and then you got two that report, and then you got five, and then seven, you know, that's how they... That's how they run the company. That's how communication is done in the company. It's very, you tell your manager, manager then tells me. Um, there's no real modern communication. And then, and then I think we saw this pivot and they call it the great crew change. Mm -hmm. That's been, seems like it's been happening for like 15 years right. now. Uh, but it's, 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 I feel mm -hmm. like it's exponentially, uh, happening now. I feel like it, it was like, okay, this is an idea. And now, and then you get COVID on top of that potentially hypered, uh, you know, made that go even faster. But I think that pivot is, is definitely upon us. And we're, we're getting a new generation of people who are using modern technology, modern communication to now bet, you know, better create this network. And we really believe in the network. There's definitely still societies out there that are thriving, keep the network alive, keep the nonprofits together that bring people together. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of support behind this. And I think the industry is, is pivoting, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the crew change is a real thing. It has been drawing on longer than anyone thought, I think. But even if that, even if you take that out of the equation, the industry is getting younger, younger people are graduating college coming into this industry. Uh, they are realizing pretty substantial leadership roles. They're given yeah. very large buying power uh, and authority positions. They're calling the shots now in many of these companies. And so what that means is as the industry gets younger, we have to recognize that the younger generation grew up with the internet, right? They grew up with smartphones. They are accustomed to using their device and the internet for everything. And to the extent that you as a oil field service company can position yourself on the internet and get a strong presence on the internet, the more likely you are to get the attention of these young operators and their business. Yep. That's, that's pretty obvious, uh, with or without the great crew change. Um, 
they talk about this big gap of the middle aged people being non-existent in right. the industry. And I think that's true to some extent, but a lot of them came back. So sure. that might draw out longer than, you know, we thought. Um, but the other pivot is the fact that just based on the progression of digital technology, we have all these tools now that enable us to work remotely, not just in this industry, but many others. Zoom and Teams are some easy examples, but there are all kinds of other online platforms that let us do accounting without sitting next to the accounting person mm -hmm. or, or do reporting without sitting next to you know your tech or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And even back when I started in the industry about 10 years ago, I was managing assets that were in a different state and my team was managing assets that were in a different state and, and we did fine. It, it was, it was super easy to manage, uh, remotely. And I think the implication there is that this old world of, you know, relationships only in the industry won't fly anymore, uh, on its own. I think there's always going to be a place for that. And if you can develop a relationship with your vendors, do it, mm -hmm. but it's just going to be harder and it's going to be more expensive to do that because you're not always there in the same state right. or city as your wells or your facilities. Uh, so all the more need for, uh, more digital platforms, more online services to help keep us all connected. How you're interacting with the, all the services, the new ones, the old ones, ones that are getting bought out, you know, how you're yeah. interacting with the service companies in an area from a remote location, you've got you to have the internet. And the other thing that dropped out for me in that conversation was how, been, how easy is it for the old, an older generation to say, you know what, I'm just going to bite the bullet. I'm going to go on Trunkline. I'm going to put my services on Trunkline. Now you're there. You're out. That, that effort, that little bit of effort, of just creating a profile, uploading some pictures and saying what you do has now opened your potential business to all kinds of new decision makers mm -hmm. that you would never talk to because you don't go to their events. You don't, you don't hang out with them. You don't, you don't integrate with the younger generation, but you're the guy that's doing the best in that area. doesn't matter if you guys don't compat, you know, it's not compatible politically or, or whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> in a relationship wise. You're the best at what you do. I'm looking for that. And Trunkline has integrated, has found us, right? Has helped us connect. Yeah. I remember a project maybe three years back and the facility we were building was in Texas. The vessel, one of the vessels that we had to fabricate, custom fabricate, was being done in North Dakota. And then the inspector was in... I want to say Utah. And so we had to coordinate, this was just one vessel in a big facility. We had to coordinate, uh, the fabrication in one state, then the trucking, then the inspection in another state, then the trucking, there were more pieces involved. I don't have the time to develop those relationships or the, the money to go fly all the way around. And there are these specialized people, these specialized companies all over the country that I, as an operator, want to work with. I just don't have the time to foster relationships with each one first. Yeah. And we can do that over time, but it's the matchmaking initial sort of I find you, you find me piece that yep. we 
at Trunkline are trying to help solve. Nice. So. Yep. Right on. Have you figured out a uh, a two minute pitch on 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 uh, why the Earth is not flat? Have you solved that? <laughs> oh man, uh, I saw an experiment. You might know about this. I saw an experiment on YouTube that's supposed to like destroy every flat Earth theory, and I didn't watch it all the way through. But the guy had uh, clear tubing in a ring. Okay. And so it's like a clear garden hose, so you can see through it. And it's in a ring, probably a foot in diameter, and it's sealed on both ends. And there's water inside, and there's glitter in the water. And he says that if you if you face north and hold the the loop east west, so I'm facing north and my hands are east west, and the loop is is like this right now. Yeah. And you do this, and you turn it. The glitter will move which somehow proves that the earth's moving, that the earth's rotating. Oh. I didn't watch it through the end, but that got me thinking there's gotta be something with either angular momentum or something there yeah. that, that proves that theory, but haven't figured it out yet. Interesting. The glitter moves. The glitter is just to, just to visualize the particles. Right. It's Yeah. This turbidity thing that you can't, it's much lighter than you. It's much, it's on a different playing field than what you feel and what you can see. So it's kind of yeah. representing this. I, may, I I don't know if I understand, I could be mis explaining it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just really interesting because I've never come across an experiment, I don't think, that proves the earth is around on earth. That was the first time. So. I'll dig into that, but I, I bet there's something there because that, that water is moving with the speed of the earth, the water in the loop, right? Cause it's attached to me and I'm attached to the earth. And when you're spinning it this way from horizontal to vertical and vice versa, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know anything. Have you heard no, about that? I haven't heard about that. Okay. <clears throat> I was thinking tomography, you know, what tomography is no, the the way that uh, earthquake rattles through the core of our earth and how we have these receptors that are listening to the earth's shaking and that you can calculate that the speed of its sound right going into the earth and it's changing its velocity as it approaches the core Mm -hmm. and then that the core is solid so it reflects real fast off the core and it comes back somewhere else and they've mapped this all around the earth because these seismic events are constantly happening. And so we're constantly getting this pretty detailed imagery of the, the cold and hot plumes of the inner core coming out from the inner core to the crust. Hmm. That's tomography. 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 Never yeah. heard of it. Yeah. No, I, I think there's all sorts of visual sort of experiments you can run like standing on a standing on a mountain that overlooks the ocean and watching a ship kind of disappear on the horizon right. like that's the, the typical the typical one yeah um so that's the the inner core is where all those arrows are like this is the real red part it's doing that that's a model that's a model done by Osuda and others in japan saying that the mm. core 
you know, it's got a liquid outer core and the solid inner core, and it's spinning, went into motion. So they modeled that. But everything around that, the blues and the lighter oranges, that's all tomography data. That's the mantle. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. This is our active mantle. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I never heard of that. Yep. And those are the layers of the earth, man. So we had a conversation on LinkedIn the other day about the water cycle. Oh yeah. And I don't, I want to I want to hear you unpack your comment about how their the water cycle isn't closed, right? That's, that's your right position. There, yeah. There's water being generated somewhere. Yep. Okay. So how does that on a mass balance? That doesn't make sense to me or like a energy balance, but how does, how does that work? Yeah, so my understanding is metamorphic rocks, the rocks that are made, but they were already made. Was it igneous rock or was it a sedimentary rock at the crust? And then you subduct it. The, the minerals that make up that rock have hydroxides in it, have hydroxyls, OH negatives, mm. packed all over the place in those rocks. They're very wet. It's just not liquid. But when you... Mm. When you compress that and you, you submerge it down into the depths and pressures of, of the mantle and subducting plates, it takes the hydroxyls and it makes H2O, makes fresh water. From, what does it mix with? From the rock. Just it, pressure does that? Pressure and heat. The other thing that seems to be that's making mm -hmm. water is hydrothermal plumes. So these white smokers and black smokers and all this water that's coming out of the crust of the ocean floor and going into the water column. Well, if you look at the brines that are coming directly out of that, they're very brackish, briny, full of all kinds of stuff. But there's actually parts of that system that I guess are carrying fresh water and it's associated mm. with the clays. The fresh water carry the clays component. So I'm, to me... That doesn't seem like a completely closed loop. You like the water cycle. And I, I remember learning about that going. So <laughs> all the water that's on the planet is just recycling itself on the planet in, in the hydrosphere, the lithosphere and the atmosphere. It's all just there. And there's no, no more coming in and no more going out is the idea. And then I go, where, where did water come from? Where did it all come from? And the, 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 the hypothesis that people, some people believe, and I don't, is that it all came from comets and asteroids. Mm. The water on this planet all came from comets and asteroids. These embardment of all these rocks, all these ice rocks just hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting, carrying, it, carrying ice. And, and then that's where the water... Ice. Goes. Right. Yeah, these ice balls that are coming out from... This was, so this was before there was an atmosphere or after? As it's building, yeah. As it's so building that, its atmosphere. That's their question. How'd the atmosphere get there? Right? Mm -hmm. That's what retains the water. That's what sort of, in, sort of locks the water cycle, closes the water cycle, right? The, or are we losing water to space? The only thing we're losing to space is hydrogen and helium. Right. Everything else, we have, a, we have enough gravity to hold it, especially liquid water. You know, and that's the difference between Mars and us. Mars mm -hmm. has this early, wet rock cycle, it looks like, but it was gone at like 
eight or something like that, or by two point eight billion years, the liquid water was gone. It was it was just going on off. Mars. Yeah, Mars hmm. was losing the water, and um, you know it can have vapor and it's got ice, you know, but liquid water is gone, and it was very very brackish. It appears uh, they they call it the pesky perchlorate problem on Mars. Hmm. It's it's a uh, it's a very nasty chlorine. It's a dust. So if you wanted to go and have it uh, have uh, create a habitat on Mars, it's a, it appears to be a very bad idea. Because <laughs> how are you going to deal with this super toxic dust? You know, toxic. It's, it's chlorine. It's 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 more intense than Clorox that you wash your clothes with. And it's dust. Yeah. Huh. I didn't know. I didn't know about that. A pesky perchlorate problem they call it yeah it's just covered in mars is covered with chlorine the idea of nuking mars have you heard about that no i haven't heard heard about that that's another idea from probably not from elon musk but that's sort of what everyone understands to be his big plan is to nuke mars like to drop a nuke on mars for for what to create an atmosphere oh damn i guess it's called terraforming terraforming sort of creating an earth-like yeah presence or atmosphere but that just seems too simple yeah to me yeah you get there's so many factors to fine-tune there if you start mixing water with that planet it's you got you need so much of it to dilute the the perchlorate and is this the dust on the surface yeah so that's just that's not just obviously it's not just sand but it's a toxic chemical yep in dust form that's wild yeah it's a chlorine planet it's not a water planet it's a chlorine planet but it's not affecting our nasa equipment yeah i guess in some if if there's no water on the equipment right so i if if you if there was if there was some kind of condensate of water on the equipment yeah it would be super corrosive if it mixes oh corrosive okay gotcha gotcha it'd be nasty stuff it would be like a really, really high potency solvent. <laughs> or an acid. Or an acid. It would be an acid. Yeah. Yeah. God. How are you going to, you're not going to grow crops and shit on there. No. It's not. It's a compl- we need to be warning people before they go to Mars that that's the case. Because <laughs> that could be really bad. Yeah. I think it's definitely if a very know, bad idea. If they don't know about that. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, NASA no does, NASA knows they're the ones who call it the pesky perchlorate problem. I mean, I've never heard of this. Yeah. I thought it was just moon dust. Oh heck no. No. The moon is uh it's not a di- is a different rock. It's a different color. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a so uh, it must be somewhat different. It's a big igneous type rock. It's uh what the hell is it? It's uh it's a, I think it's an anorthosite. It's a it's a it's there's just nothing to it. The moon mm-hmm. rock is very non-exciting. Uh, huh. But there does seem maybe there's olivine. And olivine is the, that's the foundation of, of our planet, olivine. The mineral olivine is amazing. It's amazing. And then, what is it? Uh, it's, it's a, a mineral? Mag- yeah, it's a mineral. It's magnesium and iron, mostly. Really? Yep. But it, uh, it also carries all kinds of other stuff with it when you actually look at the elemental makeup of it. So the majority of the thing of olivine is magnesium and iron, but it carries lithium. It carries all kinds of other metals and mm. carrageen. Mm. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. 
And so, and when you put hot water on a peritotite, which it's a type of peritotite, and all olivine is an, an olivine rich rock is a peritotite. Okay. All right. So it's got a lot of olivine. And this, this stuff crystallizes out in our mantle all over the place. Olivine's crystallized out all through those layers I was showing you. Yeah. It's all throughout that stuff. And when it interacts with water, like the sea, subducting plates or whatever, it gets hydrostatic injection, you know, just from the hydrostatic load gets down into the mantle mm. and it hits this peridotite, bang, that's what makes serpentinite. Peridotite turns into serpentinite? When you hydrate it. Okay. Yep. Peridotite is a rock. Yep. Serpentinite is... Uh, it's also a rock. Also a rock. Right. It's a, it's a hydro... What we call a hydrothermalite. It's a, it's a water rock. It's a hydro rock. Peridotite makes a serpentinite. Yep. And where does carrageen fit in? Is it related? Yep. It goes... It gets... Uh, it actually gets enhanced, it seems like, in the process. So carrageen and olivines are in the mantle is primitive carrageen. It's a, it's a polyaromatic hydrocarbon, a PAH hydrocarbon, but it's, it's very low in concentrations, but incredible volumes. We're talking about the scale of the earth, right? Mm. Planetary scale. It's every, it's all throughout there, but it's very low concentration. When you hit it with seawater and then you see the carrageen and serpentinite. So after the serpentinization has occurred, it has gotten bigger it's been hydrogenated mm. there's been more hydrogen added to that carrageen in serpentinite and then what happens to serpentinite is a dehydration event when it breaks under tectonic forces like plate subduction rifting anything like that and you break the serpentinite it dehydrates itself and like 40 percent expansion volume thing happens and the water just totally escapes out of the serpentinite could it could we break a big chunk of it mechanically if we had a big chunk of it or does it take like significant pressure or forces to do that to break serpentinite yeah you're talking about tectonic yeah pressures but yeah like could we simulate that in a lab with you know machinery or is it is that not possible i don't know i don't I that's don't, never been done i bet yeah it, it would have to be incredible pressures and heats for sure this is all happening down at you know, the ocean floors, the mm. contact between the mantle and the lithosphere is the serpentosphere. It's where what we call the moho. So it's up to 30, 40 kilometers deep. And it's very, um, uh, what's the term? It, it slips very easily. So it's, it's almost like we, we refer to it as tectonic grease tectonic place grease mm. you know this stuff is shearable that's what it is it's very shearable down there and so when these uh when these tectonic forces are are in in play the the rock serpentinite moves and shears very easily and bang it dehydrates and it's the volatile component of the rock in that process that's creating these massive deposits on the earth mm. and freshwater lakes potentially yeah. So where around the planet? Oh, on the surface. Yeah. Okay. You can, I oh, are wow. right. I argue mm. that these droughts it's yeah. Rainfall and snowfall, all that stuff is for sure part of the system, but there's something also happening from below. So there's a bigger gotcha. process that might be driving these massive droughts, like in Nevada and California and all that stuff. 
Hmm. There might be a much bigger geologic process at play here that no one's really tapped into because it's all just new science. It's, these are big ideas. You don't see the serpentosphere. You can't see it, right? We see it coughed up through tectonic events and that there's serpentinites and these peridotites like where we can mine them. We see the rock, but the actual process that's happening, this is all just you know ideas based on data. Yeah, we can't extract it and study it yeah can't drill down to it right did i hear correctly the the deepest well we've ever drilled is in the order of like forty thousand feet yeah seven kilometers something like that okay so yeah so that so we're not even close even at forty thousand feet no 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 seven yeah so seven kilometers is the deepest seven kilometers yeah the russians russians drilled it yeah yeah yeah, so that's that's the part that's perplexing about it. You can't really simulate this in a lab or study it in a lab. You're or, right. Um, you know, right. It, yeah, and, and it our was, human brain can't like we struggle so badly with that. Yeah, so badly. Engineers need to like physically, you know, at least for me, witness it or test yep. it somehow empirically. Yep, and it's not until you can see it that all right it's there the mid-atlantic ridge so plate plate tectonics is a perfect example yeah the lady that identified that i can't remember her name google was was highlighting her whole career a couple few weeks ago celebrating her her existence basically she was seeing all this stuff in the data she's like Mm. there's 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 rifting there's this big ridge in the mid-atlantic ocean you know, she was seeing it in the data because all that sonic data was coming back from the 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 submarines, and it was it was oh, wow. they were mapping the ocean floor, but they were looking for other subs. You mm-hmm. know, this is like uh, the Cold War era and all that stuff. They were looking for these other subs, you know, and where are they hiding? And they started mapping the ocean floor, and then she's like, "Whoa, what's this mountain range on the ocean floor over here?" And the guy's like. Nah, it can't be a thing, you know, just redo your work. I don't think it's right. You know, the kind of the story. And she goes, I did it again. And these are here. This is a massive mountain, like mountain range in the ocean floor. Hmm. And it's, it appears to be separating like this big rift things happening. And it wasn't for like, that was in the sixties or whatever, you know, it wasn't until the seventies when they actually got a submersible down there to take a picture of this thing that they finally were like, okay, maybe that's how this, you know, actually works. Maybe tectonics is really a thing. Where was this in the mid-Atlantic? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, like where exactly in the mid-Atlantic they, they do this first? Yeah, you're saying that we didn't, as as a society, we didn't understand plate tectonics really until right. the 70s? Yeah. Wow. I didn't yeah. know it was that recent. Oh, yeah. Plate tectonic revolution was in the 70s. The whole Pangea theory and all, all that, that stuff. That's, that's right. 70s. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yep. And it's really all it is is an overarching model. They just, now that all we do uh, in literature and stuff is bumper car tectonics. You just take uh, India and you crash it into Asia <laughs> and you, you uh, it's, it, but there's something from below. There's, there's a, a subcretion. And it's mm-hmm. this subducting plates do this through geologic time, and they also rotate. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of rocks being made under the continents that are, it's totally foreign. P- 
people cannot wrap their minds around that because it's just all like an idea. Show me the data. Show me what you mean. How Prove it. Show me. You know, videotape it. No, no chance. I know. It's because we're not even... The crust is such a tiny fraction of the ball of earth that we're on. Right. And most of what you're talking about is still in the crust, right? But it's Lower far crust. deeper than right. we could ever get to. Right. You right can now. image it through sonic and sound and all that stuff, right? We can yeah. image it through seismic. And that's done a great job at showing that stuff. And then you see over and over and over what we call ophiolites. This is a piece of the ocean floor that's been somehow, when subducted, it was coughed, it broke off and it stayed there. And then it got uplifted through some later event. And now it's at the surface of the earth mm. in the middle of the continent. Like serpentinites are showing up. So now it's just starting to become a thing that the ocean floor is serpentinite. That a big part of the ocean floor, the piece of the ocean floor is the rock serpentinite. Hmm. And they're coughing up and they're mapping it now in the middle of continents, not just on the edges where it's all happening with subducting plates on the edges of the continents. We're seeing it all there. But now we're seeing these things in the, in the middle of the continents. So, so hmm. the idea that the serpent, serpentinite is everywhere. It's a massive first order global geologic process, first order process that's really driving our understanding of the whole thing, the atmosphere. It's the it's mm. the connection between the mantle and the atmosphere. It's it's it's, mm. it's 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 the integrated part of the planet and we're just barely starting to figure this thing out. We're and you and your theory is that water somehow originates there with the serpentinite or did back I to the water cycle yeah yeah how does is that my my theory or my explanation is that that's still just part of the water cycle yeah the boundary is just bigger than we thought bigger than we thought okay but if it's actually if it's if, if it was never water to begin with and it's just chemically being converted into water somewhere that's not what i thought that's pretty interesting I didn't know that was because I always thought water rains, then it evaporates, then it rains, then it evaporates. And right. No, it's definitely there's an input to that whole rain and evaporation system. Hmm. There's an input from the deep and there's inputs from the, the water that's trapped in rocks and in the minerals that are in, of the rocks. When they get up, then when they get subducted, turns to H2O. So there's there's ways to add more water to this cycle, you know, this this atmosphere Hydro, uh, hydrosphere cycle. Has that loop ever, do you think it's been ever closed to where water somehow reconverts back into what did you the say? The rocks. Yeah. What, the hydro, not hydroxide. Hydro, hydroxyls. Hydroxyls. Yeah. That's happening real deep, but maybe, yep. maybe somehow it's being reconverted and there is a closed loop there. Or would that, that would require the water to somehow get down there. Yeah. Which it's, it's it is doing, yeah, it's it is. doing just, so I'm, I'm not wondering where, cause oxygen and hydrogens would have to be coming from the deep mantle. The oxygen is the weird part. Where's that coming from down there? Uh, hydrogen's everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. How do you get oxygen down there? It's gotta, it's, yeah, it's not just gas. It's obviously, and it's chemically linked to something else, and then it gets converted yeah, chemically. Right. Uh huh. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's a in the magma model, magma K model. There's this subcritical, supercritical boundary, and where uh, water is the density of 0.3 under the supercritical, subcritical boundary, and when it crosses that boundary, and this is right at the serpentosphere-ish depths, so around 30 to 40 kilometers is this this line where water turns from this vapor really. Thing. It's not liquid water like we drink. It doesn't have that density. It's much less dense, right? It's not a gas. But it's not a gas. Yep. What's in between? <laughs> I don't know. It's a wow. It's a dense gas. It's condensate water. Yeah. Yeah. Something right? like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's hard to imagine. It's so hard to imagine down there under pressure and under I know all that heat. I know. But we have all these rocks that we're tracking and we're, we're seeing the elemental makeup of these rocks and, and you're just coming up with, okay, you know, if, if, if you needed to figure that out, there's ways to do it. It's the story that's in the rocks. It's yeah. the elemental makeup of the rocks. Didn't you say that we've never found a fossil below 1,600 feet? No. Where did I hear that? Not for me. Never found a fossil below 1,600 feet. Nah, that's... That's not true. We've cored, true. nah, we've cored wells for sure. Uh, I, I know of a core from Oklahoma at like 7,000 feet that had this huge gastropod in it. Huge yeah. snail. Down at the bottom? Yeah, down at the 7,000 foot. Wow. Uh, you know, it was huge. It was amazing. How lucky is that? Oh, I know. That. Or not lucky, but just. The right odds on, of that? Yeah. I mean, it was right a carbonate, target. carbonate, uh, the name of the formation was the, <sighs> gosh, that sucks. I, I don't remember the name. I'll, I'll remember it in post-production, of course, but uh, it's I'd not love the to see a photo of that. I mean, yeah. was it like a fossil fossil like we're used to seeing? Just it wasn't a cast. Know? It was the straight up, fo- it was a huge gastropod. Like the size of my fist, dude. Like, Is that like a beetle? That long. No, it's like a snail. Snail? Yeah. Big That's ass crazy. one. How big was the core diameter? Four inches. Yeah. Thing was like the whole size of it. And That's then wild. we slabbed it, you know, cut it in half and got to see the inside of it and everything. It's freaking wild shit that we That's, did. So I need to go back and see where I read that. So, so I, cause I, th- I heard that we've never found a fossil below 1600 feet. I thought that's weird, but, um, that was, that was sort of mentioned in this context of the whole theory that fossil fuel is not fossils. Mm. It's not dead dinosaurs. It's, it's kerogen. Right. And they pointed to the fact that we haven't found fossils as deep as we're drilling for oil to point to say that it can't be. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, we, that, that's not there. Yeah. That's uh, <clears throat> 1600 feet. definitely not, not a real thing. Maybe 16,000 or something like that. But even then, what we'll find is is what we call like uh, uh, microfossils. You know, it's like these these little uh, plankton and stuff that you you, mm-hmm. you you know we see in the in the sea column, floating around, just like eating random things. These little tiny little critters, mm-hmm. and we see things like strange things like that in cores from deep, like Woodford, and you know these things are at ten thousand feet, twelve thousand feet. You see yeah. these. What, what, what someone calls a microfossil, but you know, some of that stuff's arguable, you know, like, is it really a fossil or is it, you know, some, something else, some kind of just carbonate buildup 
that happens from, you know, these vents and because our geologic model's not right, right? Like the, you have, no one is using mud volcanism, the vents, you know, if in the Permian Basin on the shelf and all this stuff, we're seeing it now. There's really cool publications coming out where it's this shelf, you know, it's this modern shelf and they're seeing these mud volcanoes all po- all over the place poking out of this this shelf and it's shedding off sediment into the deeper part of the basin. Mm. But for us to go back in old models in, in old areas like the Permian Basin and, and then we think, oh, how did this put itself together? Oh, there must have been a shelf and then it builds up carbonates because the sea level's at the right plate, the right depth. So it's got its sunlight. So it's feeding the critters and they're living and dying on the shelf. And then eventually that shelf will break off and shed into the basin and, and, and sea level drops. And that brings sand because the rain starts working all that into the basin. That's how the model works right now. Mm-hmm. That's how they fill up the basin in the Permian Basin. But there's all these vents and this serpentinization, mud volcanism, these other things that are way more powerful than this sedimentary used to see. Sea level rise and falls, used to see. It's just using that in sedimentary processes to fill up the basin. It's, there's more at work here. Why doesn't the geological survey work that happens all the time out there detect any of this? Or do they detect it and ignore it or miscatalog it? Right. Yeah, you don't see it. And it's you don't just, see it. Right. How do, you, how do you know about it? How do, how do I know about it? How does anyone know that there's a mud volcano? Well, now that we're documenting so many of them around the world, we're, seeing, we're, we're mapping the ocean floors a lot better than ever before. You know, before, not too long ago, we had no idea. You know, these, these ocean floors were full of pockmarks and mud volcanoes and all these vents, these feeders, you know, all that stuff wasn't, wasn't there. So these textbooks have been around way longer than the mm-hmm. actual empirical evidence for this stuff. So it's just now start, you know, working its way in. And we're, gotcha. geologists have, from the very beginning, have been classically trained from top to bottom, top to bottom, top to bottom. Very rarely mm-hmm. do you know, learn from a geologist who says, let's go from the bottom up. And when he says bottom, he's talking about the serpentosphere. He's that makes about, way more sense. Yeah. So geology is, yeah, progressing, man. And it, it, we have a lot of super specific information. We have a model that allows us to be a lot more specific and predictive. And I think that's going to drive you know, so much innovation in the near future is yeah. a new model that explains this way better and and now we can go and explore with this model eventually and we have modern technology now that's coming out where you can get this elemental data way faster but uh, what's going to be interesting is if if it turns out that where we've been searching for oil wasn't the best place to search for oil and because of technology we discover whole new deposits that are more plentiful potentially somewhere else but it's probably going to require some different technology to get to it. Yeah. Somehow. Yep. Uh, but. That could be, definitely be a real thing. Yeah. We're looking for active dynamic systems. And that's the biggest change in the model is mm. we're thinking it's pretty static. You know, the, the idea that the oil was there, it got deposited by this, this life. It took 90 million years and then it got cooked. And now you have a certain amount of oil there and there's no more. It's just, that's what we got. That's a static model. 
and that's wrong. It's a, re- it's a non-renewable resource. It's non-renewable. That's the theory. Right. It's wrong. Yeah. This is a very dynamic process and it's being fed by some system. Where are you at in that system? You can map yourself. You can map it. You can figure it out and get yourself to the best part of that system where that well will be the best producing well for our children and your children's children's lifetime. That well is going to be the best. If you're off center from those greatly connected wells, those are the wells that just decline and never make any good money after a while. Yeah. You can make some money up front. There's a lot of wells out there like that. There's, but there's still a lot of un, untapped resources in this. Well, it's like what we were talking about with the three phases of matter, solid, liquid, and gas being yeah. a, a continuum. Yep. Renewable and non-renewable resources are sort of a continuum as well. It, the, like they say solar energy is, is renewable, right? Yeah. But it's not because the, exp- the sun is decaying. Mm. just on our time scale it's renewable right. we'll never run out but it's actually running out and yep. same with wind and yeah or maybe winds farther on the continuum but i've never really understood the non-renewable and renewable difference they're all the whole universe is decaying right 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 um laws of thermodynamics yeah so it's just on our time scale that it's yep. renewable yeah or unlimited yeah, the hydrocarbons that we make and that the earth produces, you know, that's it's vital to our existence. You know, like we are we're in the biosphere, which is the HOC part of the planet. That's the HOC part of the planet. Hydrocarbons, the HC that's feeding in by all these vents and all these seeps and all, you know, this oil that's coming out, like that's a big part of what we are and how we work it doesn't need to be burned, you know, for energy that mm. might not, that it's not the most efficient way to do it, but it is definitely the most reliable and most plentiful that we have as our, you know, dumb brains are currently operating, you know, like that's what we figured out. Where are we going to go from there? Yeah. EM, uh, or magnetics, like you're saying, you know, some other new form of energy storing it is for sure a big deal, but yeah, it looks like the best storing material is graphene, which is a hydrocarbon. Yep. That's kerogen. Really? Yeah. It's a form of kerogen. How do you extract it? How do you extract graphene? Yeah. Or so, the kerogen. How do you yeah, extract that? The, uh, the, the only thing that we've done out there is by uh, water bubbling. So we took the material out of the rock because it's in graphite. It's in a black rock graphite, mm-hmm. like a black shale. You crush it up and then you bubble water and the graphene separates out and sits at the top. Hmm. So you can get it that way. And then solidify that to yeah. make and somehow cells. Yeah. Yep. Wow. I've Process heard of that before. Yeah. Yeah. The rock itself is amazing capacitor. Yeah. Hmm. We did we did induced polarity on the rock and the company that's been doing this for a long time said we've never seen a rock hold the electrical charge like this rock did the, so it already naturally is a good capacitor hmm. like in terms of the duration that it held yeah, the charge the strength and the wow. yeah the holding power of this material just raw but it you know it's what's way out there we're working on a prospect that's got this stuff and and marketing it to someone who has the money who says, hold on, you want to spend, you know, 5 million 
drilling more and doing feasibility tests and mm. who's buying this stuff you know no one's really using this stuff uh at a at a commercial scale it's still yeah. big kind of idea stuff and they've done all these cool tests the uh, the one that's d- propelling the most right now is concrete i've heard about that yeah. concrete with graphene in it <laughs> We are live. We're the conception part of the PBE podcast with Joseph Trasta. Trasta. Crasta. 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 It's the it's it, the C H. Yeah. Right. It's like K R. That's how you pronounce it. K R. Crasta. Oh, Crasta. What yep. is that? Is that uh, what what kind of uh, background is that? Uh, both of my parents have a hint of Italian. The name Crasta is Czechoslovakian. Oh, it is. Yeah. So there's supposedly a town named after our, our family over. Somewhere in Czechoslovakia. Wow, and supposedly I got some Czech in me. Yeah. That's, uh, that's maybe where we got our synergy. I, I heard they got good food, so I have yet to, to visit, but that's uh, it's on my list. <laughs> nice, man. Yeah, have you done any European <laughs> travels? No, no, I haven't. You've never been to Europe? Never been to Europe, never been outside the U.S. other than Canada twice. Nice, Canada twice, <laughs> nice. Uh, how old are you? 31. 31. 31 years young, man. Wow. Nice. Let's rock it back, dude. Where were you born? Where are you from? Born in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Is that right? Yep. Don't remember it. I was there for two years. Um, I'm the first born. So my mom and my dad and I moved to Dallas when I was around two. Grew up there for most of my young adult life. Um, we moved to Boston for two years. And that's came, where you get your accent from, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Learned how to play ice hockey up there. Fell in love with that. Nice. Um, got a taste for kind of the old history of the, you know, the Northeast and the colonies and the yeah. Revolutionary War. Yeah. We were up there during 9-11, oh, which man. was real interesting Whoa. as a young kid. And then we moved back to Dallas uh, when I was about 11. Jeez, dude. What were so, your parents doing to make a move like that? <laughs> My dad was, uh, he was a professor. He was a pastor. Oh, wow. Held, what denomination? Non-denominational. Non-denominational yeah. pastor. Yeah. So he showed up in flip-flops and a t-shirt. <laughs> no, he's pretty, uh, pretty formal. And, okay. And I like that about nominee. him. But, but yeah, there was, a, there was a large church movement that started, I think, in the 80s that he was part of. And it spread all over the world. And he was a pastor. He wow. still is to some extent. Um, Although I'd say he's sort of semi-retired uh, in that respect. But yeah, that took us to Boston and then back to Dallas. And that's kind of where I stayed uh, up until now. How old were you when you moved back to Dallas? 11. You were 11 when you 11. moved back to Dallas. So did yeah. you bring your hockey skills back to Dallas? and like? I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, back then in Dallas, there wasn't much of an ice hockey community. Dallas uh, Stars, man. What do you mean? Not well. There was the professional team, but for the average, you know, young person, is that right? There wasn't much. No. So roller hockey was a big thing. Street hockey. Oh, oh man, you get me on some skates, dude. Yeah. I can get down on those things. Yeah, it's it's actually a very different game than ice hockey. They're very different. Skates, when you're on rollerblades, they're a lot heavier. Right. You turn differently. You stop differently. Um, and usually you play with a ball instead right. of a puck. Yeah, there's always a ball. Yeah. Oh, I could be a freaking goalie. Pah, you ain't getting nothing by me. Or I could be out there deacon, deacon yep. and die. Oh, man, I loved it out in the streets. Yeah. You don't want to be a goalie. That's that's hard on your joints and uh, <laughs> like your, your lower body. So Is you, that right? Like, yeah. a, like a catcher in baseball. 
Well, you're always like dropping down on your knees right. and, and twisting and turning to, you know, to stop the pucks. But, but yeah, I loved, I loved every position. I loved playing ice and street hockey and, um, didn't really do much when I first moved to Dallas, picked up street hockey a little bit, but when I was older, this is now probably like 2016, 2017, after I had been in the workforce for a while and I kind of had a stable career yeah. development going, I got into ice hockey big time in Dallas, <laughs> big time. And they had more rinks, they had more um, players, they had wow. you know, a bigger community than nice. when I first moved to Dallas. Yeah. So it's healthy now, it's huge, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What'd you learn from ice hockey, man? What, <clears throat> what do you think it was? What, uh, what turned you on to it so much? There's so many cool things about it. I mean, it's the fastest team sport out there. Um, You're on ice skates. uh, So, you know, you're moving really fast. It's very, it's a very technical game. Uh, You're not on your, if you think about that, most team sports uh, are played on your feet and with your hands. So you think about football, you're on your feet and you're throwing the ball with your hands. Okay. Basketball, you're on your feet, you're moving the ball with your hands. Okay. Same thing to an extent, even with baseball and soccer, but with hockey, you're not on your feet. You're on skates. You're on a thin piece of steel mm-hmm. and you're not moving the puck with your hands. You're moving it with a stick that you have to sort of, you know, be really coordinated to learn how to use. So it's in those two dimensions, it's a much more complicated sport Interesting. than your average. So I think I like the challenge of it. I like the fact that you can play it anywhere in any season, rain, wind snow you're indoors in a rink and you know so you can always enjoy it i hated you know i love playing baseball but i hated having to be sort of like subject to the weather right you know yeah so yeah just there's there's so many things about hockey and you know the camaraderie among the guys um is is really cool Uh, now in in business it's a really nice place to meet people really and do business kind really? of like the golf course but for really? a different group of guys so yeah for a little, a little more tougher guys <laughs> yeah yeah well there's so there's the tough guys in hockey yeah um and that's like an older sort of era in hockey where it's about fighting and like right size and physicality yeah. there's there's still some of that left in the in the pro leagues but then there's this other class of people who are smaller but faster and more skilled with the puck and uh you know they can they can they're more um agile right yeah you got like an offensive lineman out there just crushing yeah. dudes can't do anything with a puck though he's just like i don't even need the stick i'm yeah. just here to hit people guys that's right uh which is entertaining right and so you got to balance <laughs> the entertainment factor of hockey with uh the skill and technical stuff can't can't lose the tough guys, you know. No, no. Are, you, are you saying that ho- pro for hockey is kind of evolving here? It definitely is. Yeah, oh. I think back in the day, um, they would hire guys onto the t- or they recruit guys onto the team that weren't necessarily good players. They were just big enforcers. They were enforcers, and they could fight. And um, now and then, you need a guy who can just go out and show the other team, you know, who's boss and send a message. Right. You don't need him to score or pass. Right. No. Nowadays, it's I don't know why that that's being phased out. It's not really actively being phased out, but there's just a bigger crop of talented, younger, smaller players. Yeah, I mean less. Whatever. Yeah, less. I think the 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 older we get, uh, the less we want to like use our heads to 
you know, bang against somebody else's <laughs> body. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. really want to do that. I'm, I'm more interested in the finesse of the game or like the technicality of the game. Yeah. That's interesting. So you'll see now watching the NHL uh, and even some of the lower leagues, the things that guys can do now with the puck, they can lift it on their stick. Yeah. They can twirl it around. They can make passes that you'd never think of. There's like this whole new skill set that people are developing and uh-huh. working really hard on. There's my favorite player right now is Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby. That's Sydney Crosby. Uh, Pittsburgh, right? Pittsburgh Penguins. He's been the, the face of his team and the face of the league for at least probably 10 years. How old is this guy? Yeah, he's been around for at least 10. Yeah, he's 35, I believe. Wow. So. But he he's sort of straddles these two eras I'm talking about. I would put him in the more technical skilled category yeah. for sure but he made a play uh, a couple seasons ago that no one would ever think of and mm-hmm. it was a play when the other team pulled their goalie out of the net uh-oh so the goalie is on the bench right. the net's empty and they that got means, an extra guy though they got an extra guy but and that's the other team so crosby's on the team that's trying to score into the empty net yep any guy who gets the puck with an empty net would send it straight towards the net right you just chuck it out there not crosby he banks it off. Of, he shoots it diagonally against the boards uh-huh. to make it deflect into the net. Oh, like a pool player. Kind of like a pool player. So it's a, like you got to kind of figure out the geometry of the deflection. And he did it. And it was like the first time that had ever happened. Wow. And we were just amazed. It was like no one even thinks about that, let alone does it the first time in a game. So That's it's crazy. that kind of like cool talent that, I like rather uh, than the fighting side of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, the fight. I mean, I, so I, I got to grow up in LA County. Right. So I got to you know the Kings and mm. Gretzky. Right. And then mm. getting to go to the games later when I was old enough. Oh man. The enforcers are, there's something about that energy, man. The whole crowd just like, yep. you know, like it's, <laughs> you get into it, man. You feel it. It's the only sport that allows fighting. Right. Right. Oh man, bare knuckles. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude. And their helmets are still on sometimes. Uh, yeah. So they're, they're hitting each other's helmets and I can't imagine. Man. <laughs> When's the last time you've been in a hockey fight? Uh probably let's see, it was probably two years ago in Dallas. <laughs> oh dear, you're a grown ass <laughs> man. <laughs> Just like <laughs> We try. I, I'm one of the ones that tries to de-escalate the fights. Right, like, come on, guys. You know, in adult, le- in adult recreational hockey, it's usually not one-on-one fights. It's like bench-clearing brawls. Um, <laughs> and then you go have drinks after, of right, course. Right, So it, it doesn't really get to the level of, like, really fighting, but there's pushing and shoving, and there's... Yeah. Some guys might, like, rip their helmet off to start something, but... Hopefully the refs get involved and it gets de-escalated. But that happened. I played with a team from Odessa. We put a group together and went to Dallas for a tournament, and uh, we just ran into some teams that gave us some trouble. So is that right? We got yeah. pretty close to fighting. Oh, you didn't actually drop the gloves and score. I didn't. No, oh, okay. but I was involved. I was in the scuffle. I see. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. So, so, what position do you play now as an old man? Um, I'm pretty much a defenseman most okay. of the time. Nice. Um, there's, there's kind of two schools of thought on, uh, what side to play based on whether you're right-handed or left-handed. Hmm. Um, so I play left defense, even though I'm right-handed. Some people would say that's wrong though, because that means that 
I'm up against the boards here. Yeah. But my stick is over here. So yeah. if, if the puck's coming across the boards, yeah. I, I'm kind of awkwardly trying to right. turn around to get it. Um, so I can see that angle, but I just prefer being on the left side. I can skate better backwards that way. So oh, left, nice. de- left defense is yeah. what I do. Left but I can D. play anything. Um, I enjoy all. Did your mom and dad hockey or something? Or, or how did you get to the, what, what, what happened here? Turn on no. hockey. Um, no, my dad was a football player. And I don't remember what he, maybe running back. And okay. he ran track. Uh, really good at football. Got me into football when I was young. Nice. Uh, I, was, I was good at running and catching and throwing uh wasn't a big guy but i enjoyed it but it was it was just being in boston for those two years being around you know in boston every young guy grows up playing hockey hockey everyone and you play on frozen ponds in the winter you're watching it with your buddies you're playing out in the front yard with a ball like so that i just got addicted to it and uh, we've got some cool photos of me when I was really young, up at 6 a.m. before school, skating on a frozen pond around back around our house. So I fell in love with it. Uh, can't get enough of it. And fortunately, there's enough down here in Texas. Just <laughs> enough. Satisfy that now. Yeah. Damn. And because yeah. you're in Midland now. Midland. Okay. So uh, transition us back. Let's go back. You're a kid in Boston. You're now 11 in Dallas. You're growing up, you're getting through high school, you're getting through college right out of high school. Is that the route you took? Right. Okay. You went to UT Dallas? Went to UT Dallas. Oh, snap. What do they call? What's that team called there? The Comets. The Comets. (laughs) Gotta love it. I'll have to look back. I don't know where that came from, actually. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure. There must be an astronomy emphasis or something in that school. But we didn't. UT Dallas didn't have a football team. I don't think they do still and so our big sport was chess oh no that's what you guys are known for homecoming was all about the chess team (laughs) at ut dallas and i wasn't into that so (laughs) um i don't know why i didn't get into hockey or get back into hockey in college because there's like four or five rinks right around campus oh wow that i didn't know about so crazy i just just, were focused on school yeah what was it what were you going into school for what was your college degree all about mechanical engineering mechanical engineering explain explain what did you learn why why did you do that uh it's a big field uh the advice i got was every company that hires engineers needs mechanical engineers oh wow that's like a fundamental engineer of whatever you're doing engineering wise yep i don't know if that's true in every single case but if it's a company that specializes in something electrical, for example, obviously they'll have electrical guys there, but they also need mechanical. And if it's like a you know nuclear engineering company, they'll need the nuclear guys, but also mechanical because the mechanical guys physically put the product together. They design the box, the enclosure, the device, whatever thing it is mechanically, how it works, how it operates. Um, so that was the advice I got. Okay. And I had a various, you know, different choices of schools to go to. I got a pretty large scholarship to UTD and that kind of made the decision for me. Yeah. Um, they didn't have civil engineering, which was sort of my second uh, choice. So I picked mechanical and, you know, really loved it. What's the difference between mechanical and civil? Mechanical has to do more with, uh, 
like physical parts, gears, mm-hmm. shafts, rotors, engines. Civil is uh, civil is more like buildings and structural um, designs of buildings and hmm. uh, infrastructure, roads, bridges. Okay. Um, you could think of civil like on a bigger scale, bigger sized things, and mechanical is the smaller, sort of more intricate. I see. Yeah. Uh, Civil builds the roads, mechanical builds the engines that drive on the roads. Right. I see. Yeah. Interesting. So we learned a lot about we learned a lot about gears and pistons and ironically not much about pumps and compressors. Is and that right? Right the there in UT that, Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, UT Dallas is a, like a research institution for uh Texas instruments. So they're like a the calculator? Yeah, yeah. Huh. They make a, a bunch of scientific equipment and they have government contracts. But um, UT Dallas was like, I guess in the beginning, a research institute for Texas Instruments. Okay. So it was like a, an arm, the research arm of Texas Instruments. And so the school grew around that. And it's right. really known for computer science and software engineering and telecom okay. uh, fields. What did you uh, What did you do? What years were you doing the mechanical engineering on? 2010 to 2014. Oh, wow. So <laughs> the Barnett and all that stuff. I mean, oil and gas is blowing up in, yeah. in uh, the Fort Worth Basin and all that stuff while you're doing this. I had no idea. Is that right? No idea. What? No, I thought I, was, I thought I was going to graduate and go work for Bell Helicopter or General Motors or Lockheed Martin. Wow. These were, or a telecom company. I had no idea the oil and gas industry was out there. None. I don't know how that's the case, but wow. growing up in the big city and, you know, going after mechanical, maybe I just had no concept of the industry and the opportunities and the yeah. need for engineers. So I was really fortunate to come across the industry after college. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It blows my mind that uh, it's not a huge like or at least some emphasis on oil and gas in you know how how important it is to the infrastructure of Texas and mm-hmm. and all that stuff but obviously you guys don't get any kind of funding from that industry I guess your funding comes from just totally different world that might be it yeah there was a pretty big emphasis on wind energy in is that right yeah and that sort of fascinated me um there were a lot of problems with it you know, the expense side of things, um, and the subsidies. And so never got into that in a big way. You remember, uh, any kind of geology courses while you went to school? (laughs) I do. Nice. What kind of, what is this? What is this scoffing? uh... It was an online course. Oh, damn it. And that, yeah, it was sort of just a, an essential credit I had to take. So, um, didn't get much out of it, but it was, it was fascinating because we, on campus, we had this, uh, this sort of walkway between two buildings that was, and it's probably still there. It was just covered in different rocks and it was the geology school of the, of the campus. And you could walk through and like see different rocks and, um, they had some stuff in glass cases inside. So nice. it was really cool, but the class itself, I mean, it was online. It was yeah. straight out of a textbook. I didn't get much out of it. Yeah. No field work. No field no work. Field work. No. Jeez. <laughs> Sons of guns. No, it was a pretty easy course too. It didn't really, didn't really uh, challenge, challenge me, unfortunately. You. So these guys. But it's it's interesting because 
that was the case for a lot of, of uh, courses. I remember another one that didn't really interest me at the time was history. Hmm. Um, but after college, all oh, right. Yeah. You in life, you figure out, um, uh, what you're really interested in. You come across things in life that all of a sudden turn you on to certain things like history, mm-hmm. which happened for me that in college I had no interest in, but right. when you see like an, a real application in real life that motivates you to go study it relentlessly. Yeah. Yeah, and now I'm just huge into history. But I right? wish I had that drive in college. Right? Yeah. Well, up, shit, you would have been a historian instead yeah. of an engineer, the creator of trunk line. I think, yeah, <laughs> I, I think everyone, everyone's got a fascination with history to some extent. Yeah, but it has yeah. to be unlocked the right way. Interesting. I think the way they do it in in college is the wrong way. They <sighs> turn it into like something you have to, you're forced to study. Right. And that takes the appeal out of it. Interesting. So. Yeah. All the way back to elementary, right? Elementary yeah. school history. We're going to learn about the, from 1900 to 1950, and we're going to test you on all these names and mm-hmm. what they did and what the significant was. and Memorize these dates. Yeah. Memorize the dates. Huh. Yeah. So, but yeah, after college, I, I got interested in a lot of things like history and geology and astronomy. Nice. nice. Um, oh yeah. The universe, man. Yeah. Let's yeah. go. And you just start to, you start to understand the basic concepts better right. than you did in school. Yeah. Because you're actually studying it with, with organic interest. Right. Uh, and it just makes learning easy. So yeah, totally different approach yeah. than when you're on your heels and you're like, what does this teacher want from me? Yeah. Cause that's what college turns into. All right. I got to figure out what this teacher's trying to tell us and what he wants to hear back from me. Mm-hmm. Cause I got to pass this class. How were you in school? By the way, were you straight A's? Yeah, I was. Straight A's. So there wasn't much else to do on college campus, so. Man. I played racquetball. <laughs> um, I had a good group of friends, but yeah, I was just, I was living on campus all four years. Wow. So I just studied and, uh, you know, went to class and yep. went to the teaching assistant labs and all that. So did pretty well. Uh, it was a challenge though. It wasn't sure. easy. No, yeah. Got some, got some bad grades in programming, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and chemistry. Oh but, man, the chemistry. Gosh. Yeah. 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 College was, was definitely a, a struggle for me. You know, I went back later, so I didn't, uh, you know, I went back with a completely different attitude. Uh, mm-hmm. I was older than everybody else. So it was like, you know, my questions were way off the, the radar. Yeah. And, and then all the young kids really enjoyed that because they, you know, it was questions they didn't really think about. And yeah. I always chased the anomaly or the assumption that was always like my thing mm. like, or it, it became that because I was learning that as I was, went back, I'm going, what do, what do these people really know? You know, what are we, what are we talking about? Biology and physiology. Cause I wanted to do doctor of osteopathy before geology. And then I went to geology and I'm going, what are you talking? Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, all this stuff, all these terms and all like, what are the assumptions? So that's what I was really into. And I was just B, you know, A's, B's and occasional C's uh, of a student. Um, so I was, you know, trying to be the best, but I, it didn't come supernatural to me on how to figure out like, you know, how to, how to just get that in your mind and get it locked for that test. So, you know, you're going to walk through whatever problems they give. I struggled with that, Hmm. understood it. You know, I was able to bang my head against the wall, get through calculus and all those classes, but yeah, there's, how were you with calculus? Oh man, it was the hardest thing that I went through. Yeah. 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 Calculus Calculus one, one, two. Yep. One and two. That's all I needed to take. If you had to explain calculus, 
now to like a five-year-old could you how would you do that or could oh, you do that jeez nah <laughs> yeah area under a curve you know yeah. it's just this idea of infinite and the idea of zero and and yeah. how to calculate that it's pretty good that area yeah you that's know? pretty good yeah I, I've come across, I did pretty well in calculus, but I, I figured out the reason why was I had good teachers. Right. Simple as that. Most people, unfortunately don't have a good teacher or they have a teacher that teaches that in a way that's incompatible Mm -hmm. with the way they learn. Mm -hmm. And that's the case for a lot of people. So I, I come across a lot of people now who say, I hate math. Um, I'll never like math. I'll never understand math. Can't imagine ever understanding calculus. And I tell them you can, it's very simple. It's very structured. You just probably didn't have a good teacher somewhere in the past. And that sort of, uh, tainted your perception of, yeah. Elon Musk said something that I loved about this. This guy says a lot of things that people love, man. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've got I've got some quotes from him written down. Is that right? Let's hear some. He said that the problem with education is that we teach the tools, not the problem. Oh. And the, the example he gives is if you're trying to rebuild an engine, we're teaching, here's a wrench, here's a drill, uh, here's what they do. Yeah. And he's saying that's the wrong approach. You don't teach the tools, you teach the problem. The problem would be, here's the engine. Hmm. We need to remove this piece on the top and there are these screws in it. That's the problem. And then when the student sees it that way, they feel like, okay, this is easy. I just need to find a tool that twists right. this screw. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that does it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Done. That's the easy part. Yeah. We're doing the reverse where we're like, Interesting. We're, we're making it abstract. We're teaching the tools without a concept of the actual problem that they're designed to solve. So, yeah. So I had teachers that did that with calculus and the other subjects that I did well in. I think that was a big factor. That is. My teacher said, uh, here's how I teach calculus. I'm going to put you on a bicycle and I'm going to just kind of push you off in the direction. Mm. That, was, that was his approach. You're either going to figure out how to ride, fi- keep your balance, find your balance and, and keep going, or you're going to fall and, and you're going to give up. What's the point of the teacher? And that, <laughs> that's what I, I feel like you don't know what you don't know as a student. You've got to have a guide. Yeah. And that guide has to be there and be able to answer every question you possibly. So yeah, I would disagree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Dude. So did I. And it didn't really help you. Oh man. What helped me was the relationships I built with the tutors, you know, these guys that really understood it. And I was able to identify that and go, man, this guy, this guy totally gets it. Mm. And then I go, you know, are you willing to like teach it? And he's like, what? I'm like, dude, I'll pay you. You're like, I can't pay you a ton, but I can pay you for your time. And I like, let's just do these assignments together so I can ask you some questions. And he was cool. Super cool kid. You know, he's young skateboarder, just like doing his thing. Math came so easy to him, Mm -hmm. right? Didn't have to study, you know, one of those guys. And, but he, uh, but on the weekdays I was able to like sit down and go, hold on, let's walk through this dude. Like, I don't get it. And you know, his parents are like, Hey, thanks for doing this. I'm like, Thank me. Yeah, I'm thinking you're a kid, man. This guy gets it. Anyway, uh, it's funny how that stuff goes. It's funny how the uh, the idea of learning something like that, yeah, you learn how to use the tools, and and then you figure out the problem, and it's like, yeah, hold on. The, the problem is the crank broke. You know, why yeah. did the crank break? What is the crank, right? How do you get to the crank? 
how's that all mounted? Mm-hmm. And then the tools are just there, you know, it's just a toolbox of tools. The human brain is pretty powerful. When it's confronted with a problem, it can solve it. Uh, so that's the approach we need to take. Show me the problem. Yeah. Don't show me the tools yet. Show me the problem. Yeah. I might use this tool or I might use this tool, but the objective is to solve the problem. You think this, uh, <clears throat> this kind of goes into your development of trunk line? Did you, did you identify a problem like that and your brain just went to work to, 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 to design a solution? Yeah, I think, I think we all do that. Um, hmm. maybe I was encouraged when I was younger and in school to do more of that, to look at everything and to question, can this be done better? Can it be done differently? But yeah, that's, that's the genesis of trunk line is I was working for an operator. This is many years now in the, the timeline that we were talking about many years later, I was working for an operator at, in Dallas, fresh out of college, um, it was an awesome company. I was so ecstatic that I had found the oil and gas industry. I thought it was just the most amazing place. Nice. Um, so much freedom and so much, uh, so much more than what I expected out of corporate America. So really liked it. Um, and I was on a team of about five or six engineers working for this operator in Dallas. We had a meeting one day and the meeting was to pick an engineering firm for a facility that we had to build in Montana. Wow. And I'm fresh out of college. I'm a fly on the wall. I don't know anything. I'm just attending this meeting uh, and kind of watching it unfold. But I thought it was strange that we were having a meeting to pick an engineering firm for this project. It's typical for an operator to farm out the engineering to a third party firm. Um, But I just thought it was weird that six of us were gathering in a meeting to like pick a company. I just, I don't know why, but I thought that was strange. So we get in this room. It's a tiny conference room. There's a whiteboard. Um, my manager stands up and he says, okay, I'm going to write down the engineering firms that I know of that we could potentially use for this project. So he writes down, you know, maybe three companies on the board. Mm-hmm. And he says to the next guy in the room, okay, who do you know? Which engineering firms do you know that could potentially help us with this project? And that guy rattles off maybe two more. So my manager writes those on the board. Now we're down to five. Yeah. We go around the room and I think we came up with like eight engineering firms that we collectively knew that could potentially help us with this facility project. Yeah. That blew my mind. <laughs> I was thinking, wait a minute, this is an established oil field company. Yeah. Here are six experienced guys and we can only come up with eight engineering firms. Like surely there are more than eight <laughs> in the industry. Right. And why did it take us to gather in a meeting to come up with the list? Why can't I just go online and search engineering firms and get the full list? And I was sitting there just thinking about that and again, didn't say anything. I'm just observing, but that's kind of the genesis of the idea for Trunkline is there should be a search engine or some sort of platform online where you can search for any type of service in the industry and evaluate them. Yeah. And that was the next part of this meeting that kind of baffled me is after we had this list of eight engineering firms, one guy in the room says, but you know, that one engineering firm there, you know, they don't have experience in Montana where we're going to build this facility. So I think we should actually, you know, eliminate them 
for that reason. Yeah. So we cross that guy off and <laughs> we start to have this discussion of the pros and cons of each one of these firms wow. in the meeting. One by one, we eliminated all of them, all eight. Oh, wow. And so now we're sitting around looking like, well, shoot, now what? We don't have any options left. Yeah, we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to, yeah. So the outcome of the meeting was that we each had to go research independently wow. and find engineering firms and then either visit them or take them out to lunch and wow. sort of evaluate them. And I just thought this, this is really inefficient. There should be a way to, to find more than eight, number one. Right. And then from my desk or from my phone, evaluate them side by side to see what their capabilities are, where they located, where they located, yeah. you know, how many staff members, whatever I want to know, I should be able to see that. I'd like to be able to see that from my desk without wow. calling a meeting, without having to tap into individual people right. to pick their brain on what they know. It's been weeks. Yeah. Weeks of people's salaries and company money to find this. Yeah. You can do that in hours. And so that was, that was the initial sort of inspiration for the idea for Trunkline. Okay. But since then I've reflected on that meeting and I've thought, so six of us went out and we researched these engineering firms, came back with some learnings and then those learnings never got stored or shared or like Jeez. distributed to the wider company or the wider industry. So they just, that work kind of went to waste. Wow. And I thought there are many more people, many more operators out there that oh, probably man. would want to benefit from what we found. Yeah. And so I, if you extrapolate that from engineering firms to drilling companies, completions, chemicals, inspection, geology, ge all the way down the line, every service category you can think of in this industry, why I, I kept asking, where is the search engine? Wow. Why don't we have a search engine for all of these services? And that's, that's where Trunkline started. Wow. Nice, man. Let's rock it back before the Genesis and you start getting there to Trunkline. What, how do you, you're getting through college, you're getting a mechanical engineering degree, but you obviously starting, you really understand how the internet works. You really understand how programming and all that stuff. Where did all that come, where did all that develop from? Took a class in eighth grade. Uh, I went to a very small private high school. Uh, or it was a K through 12 school. I started in eighth grade and did high school there. Very small. Graduating class was, I think, 32 people. Wow. Small town. Um, really good teachers, though. Uh, my dad was one of them. And I took a class in eighth grade that was all about computers. And this was like 2007, maybe. Okay. And we learned about Microsoft Office and Excel and Word and PowerPoint took a deep dive into all of those. Um, and we also learned HTML code, HTML code. Yeah. Huh. So it's the bedrock programming language for the internet. What? Teach me. HTML. What is this? <laughs> what does it stand for? HTML it code stands for hypertext markup language, oh. HTML. So there's hypertext markup language. Yeah. It's, um, it's a pretty basic, pretty old programming language that every website is written in. And it's the, it's the language uh, that your browser, like Google Chrome okay. or Safari or yeah. Firefox, Firefox yeah. it's the language that program understands. Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer. I knew there was another one. That's yeah. just a froze on that one. There's probably more. 
Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so HTML is a programming language for the internet. Yeah. Um, you've, you've already lost me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, all right. You have the, you have the web search bar, HTTP colon forward slash forward slash trunkline.com. Yep. What that's all that, that is HTML. That is what's called the URL. Okay. That's, that's the universal record locator, right? That's the address of the website. Yep. You can think of that like the address to your house. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm following. So that's, that's the address to your house, but it's not the same thing as your house. It's not the key to get in the door. It's not the key to get in the door. No, your house mm-hmm. is the windows, the walls, the doors, the floor, the shingles. Um, and the analogy in, in the web world is that your house is your website, the pages, the buttons, the links, the photos, the text. Got it. Both of those are sort of analogous, but your address your house and your domain or your web address those are different oh if that makes sense so so every website has an address yep and then it has the pages the photos the links and all of that's written in html code okay that's where the html starts yeah so html tells your browser to display a box here and oh to display gosh. a photo here and put a red border around this text oh my and gosh. make this font times new roman and all that stuff Whoa. it makes the website appear on your screen and function properly okay whoa damn yeah and you were learning all that in eighth grade we we started it yeah in eighth grade um we had a great teacher that put us through all kinds of uh example problems and hands-on learning. So got a good foundational base in, in, uh, all things software in that class in eighth grade. Wow. And I've been tinkering with websites and the internet ever since. Okay. Uh, how do you explain the internet? What do you, how do you explain that? What is the internet? The internet is a bunch of computers that are connected to one another all across the world. That's the most basic form of the internet. Each computer, sometimes they're called servers, depending on how complicated or uh, how intricate they are. They're really just computers, though. They store files. Yeah. Um, And those files are requested by you and me through our devices. And then they're displayed. Those files are displayed on our screen. But the files that you might be requesting when you go say to like a bestbuy.com website, mm-hmm. those files might be in another country on some computer or some server somewhere else, you know, another country, another state. Yeah. Um, just depending on how that company set up their servers, but that's, that's really what it is. It's a network of, of computers with files, which is a lot different than, you know, the way the average person thinks about it. Yeah. Certainly. So when you go, so the the when you open up BestBuy.com and you see the search bar, you see the items that are on for sale and all that stuff. That's all HTML. The back end of that is all just some language, yeah. all written out on a page. Yeah, it gets really complicated. But there's HTML code, which builds the structure of the page. So like where the text boxes are located where the photos are located, 
where the menu is located, HTML really defines the structure okay. of the page. Then, separate from HTML code, there's another language called CSS. Uh, it stands for Cascading Style Sheets. That's kind of a misleading name, but CSS code doesn't provide the structure, it provides the style, hmm. the colors, the fonts, the the border, the background color, you know, things like that. So you use the two programming languages in conjunction, HTML and CSS, to build the function and the style of a website to make wow. it work and look pretty. Wow. And then there's, you know, there's more languages that do other things, but that's sort of the basic the basic website, the average website, HTML and CSS. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of eye-opening to me. That's pretty pretty bizarre to think about how complicated yeah. that is. And so the the idea with Trunkline is that you have you have a a website that someone can go to and your HTML is is the foundation of a bunch of different companies and their little stories their little one-off projects before and after photos and their text about it and all that stuff. You've, you've built a website that helps someone find a service company in their area with a recent project ready to display your HTML is totally focused and built and customized for doing like that. Right. Right. And we've implemented a lot more, um, complicated, sort of technology on top of the HTML and the CSS that allows for people to log in, people to oh, yeah. send messages, people to comment on one another's posts. Um, so there's, there's more to it than just HTML and CSS, but yeah, the, the basic premise is this is a search engine for the oil field for any company offering any product or service in the oil field, that company can showcase what they offer specifically in terms of photos of their actual work, the right. actual projects they've done, their track record, they can showcase that in the form of photos and videos on Trunkline. And that content feeds into our search engine that operators and engineers and project managers can browse and very quickly, very easily find who sells what and where are they located and all kinds of other information. So that's what we've built. We've, you know, over the years, we've iterated on our website many, many times. It's, it's a constant work in progress, but it's, it's very robust now and, uh, you know, very easy to use. And I'm really thankful for that. Man. So when did, uh, let's get into the drill down segment of the show then. If, uh, if we got through your young childhood, you, did we miss anything? Any major mentors along the way? Obviously, your dad had a huge impact in your life. Yep. Uh, your teachers in, in grade school through high school uh, impact. The college experience, kind of learning how to learn. Uh, that was cool. Yeah. And, and anything quickly after college that you went into, or did you go right into operating oil and gas after college? I actually started working for an operator as an engineer, in college. Nice. Uh, I got a really cool arrangement with this company that I interned for. They brought me on before I graduated. So that was awesome. And it was close by campus. So it worked out. Yeah. But no, I just transitioned straight into oil and gas. Okay. Uh, bought a house in Dallas and kind of started living the, the life there in Dallas. Wow. What part of Dallas? 
I was in West Plano, okay. uh, which is north of Dallas, yeah. near Frisco. Yeah. Um, I, cool story about that. I bought my house in Plano on like June 1st, 2014. Wow. That's when I moved to Midland. Really? Okay. Yeah. June 1st. June 1st, 2014. June 2nd, 2014, Toyota announces that they're moving their entire North American headquarters to Plano, <laughs> where I just moved. Oh, man. Like four or 5,000 people were going to be relocated. Yeah. Relocated from California. And this was like the next day after I bought my house, my buddy texted this article to me. And I thought, <laughs> man, that's awesome. Property values are going up. And ever since Toyota moved to Plano, every other company you can imagine started looking at Plano. Wow. Now State Farm is there. And, um, there's a bunch of other insurance companies. Warren Buffett built a huge like, billion-dollar development. The Dallas Cowboys built their practice stadium. In Frisco, right. In Frisco, which is right next door. The whole area where I moved just blew up. Wow. You uh, still own that house? I wish. Oh, no. man. So, no, I sold it. I, I, made, I did well on that, but right. uh, it's, it's completely changed now. I don't think I would have wanted to, to live there, although I would have... Not, it would have been nice to have the appreciation <laughs> for yeah. sure. Heck yeah. It was awesome. That was a good time. It was a great, great city to work in. Um, so just fascinating how much that, that whole area exploded. Wow. Yeah. You got to kind of see that happen. So you're in, in, uh, Frisco, uh, Plano from 2014 to when? 2018. Okay. Yep. Is that when you moved to Midland? That's when I moved to Midland. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I had a job offer in Dallas and I had a similar job offer in Midland. And what sort of broke the tie was that there was an ice rink in Midland. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Wait, there's an ice rink in Midland or you mean the Odessa? I mean Odessa. Okay. Yeah, they're close to Midland. Right. Um, and a pretty solid community of, of hockey guys in Odessa that either grew up playing or they actually played on the team, the Jackalopes team. Oh, the Jackalopes. Yeah, so I, I was aware of that opportunity when I was evaluating these two job offers. Wow. And I picked, picked uh, Midland. <laughs> so. What did you think of Midland when you first got there? Man, <laughs> I had so many friends who previously worked in the Permian in oil, who escaped, as they say it, <laughs> to Dallas. And I worked with these guys in Dallas, yeah. at the operator I, I worked for. And they warned me, man, you're going to hate it. The, you know, the food scene is pretty rough. The traffic's bad. It's yeah. dusty. Like they, there's this, so they warned me. I'd never been there before, and they, they really scared me about going to the Permian. And it was pretty accurate <laughs> when I showed up. I mean, they, they didn't really exaggerate it. But what's amazing is it, at least for me, it grew on me for sure. I enjoy living in Midland now more than Dallas. Wow. I don't think I would feel the same if I moved back to Dallas. I love the small town. I love the community. I love the industry. Um, and I just, you know, for now it's home and I really enjoy it. So yeah. it was a shock at first. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty well used to it now. Give us a, get us a, a pulse on the, on the industry. You know, you live in the heart of the industry for uh, American <laughs> oil and gas, man. What's it like there right now? 
I would say it's pretty healthy right now. Okay. Yeah. I, I measure it by the traffic on the roads. Yeah. Um, which is pretty high right now. Uh, I've been there since early 2018. It was booming in 2018 for most of 2018. And then kind of second half of 2019. And then obviously through COVID, right. Right. it was pretty slow. Um, but there's still work happening. We still, we saw rigs uh, and a lot of other activities. So, you know, I've no, I don't think I've witnessed a real crash out there yet from what I could tell. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, right now it's pretty, pretty strong, I'd say. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even through COVID that you, you didn't feel like that was a crash. I guess it depends on the sector you're talking about, but no, in the circles that I kind of ran in, I mean, we were busy. Um, I wouldn't say that compared to the crashes that I've heard out right, there, right. Where like it turns into a ghost town and right. everybody's like closing up shop. I've, I haven't witnessed that even through COVID and maybe, I wasn't looking in the right places. But. Sure. No, I mean, it, man, it's a small <laughs> town. I mean, you don't look yeah. you don't have too many places to look yeah. in Midland. Uh, maybe out in the field, there was a different, you know, story, but in Midland yeah. it, and maybe it's diversifying more, which is a sure. good thing. You sure. Know, back, you know, back when it was more of just an oil town, I'm sure it was more sensitive to the fluctuations, right. but now, it, you know, it was definitely slow, but it wasn't like a crash at least from my definition. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So you're in Midland now. Uh, when do you actually make trunk line? Like, so you, the idea comes to you mm-hmm. while you're in these meetings and you're realizing, man, how is there not a website or an interface out there that's gathering all this information for people in the industry to just have a quick and efficient way to find the service that they need? How's that? That was happening when you were doing your internship or your early career right after college. Right. You're identifying this problem, and then you're thinking, when do you start actually building the tools? Well, I grew up with the internet, and I grew up with my smartphone, and so I was always, I was always asking that question as I was starting my career in the oil and gas industry, like, why isn't more of this industry available for me to search on my phone? And so that meeting that I told you about in 2013, that was sort of the genesis of the idea, and then... What I did next, I didn't exactly just dive into solving that problem, fortunately. What I did next is I called probably close to 100 different operators, and I asked them to sort of validate the idea for me. I wanted Mm. to get their opinion. And I had this, fortunately, I had this community from college of alumni uh, through this program I was involved in, and many of them ironically, were in the oil and gas industry. They weren't all engineers. They were landmen. They were geologists. They were procurement. They were, you know, some of them were engineers. So I I had their contact info. I call them all. And one by one, I asked them, what's your biggest pain point in procurement? That was the question. Because I knew I was somewhat onto something in terms of procurement and contractor sourcing and commercial... uh, evaluations of different companies. So I was asking them, what do you see? What's your biggest problem in procurement? And the overwhelming answer was, we wish we had more visibility into the market of who sells what. I want to know, these guys were telling me, I want to see who sells what, where are they located? The same same things that I was asking. Who sells 
whatever pump service. jacks yeah. the valves the pumps the meters f- yeah services Whoa, that's interesting that was there and what was interesting about it was they had visibility into the market but there were two problems with it number one it took a lot of work to get that visibility what that means is they had to request usually a vendor list from their procurement department and this vendor list would come back to them in the form of an Excel spreadsheet may or may not have been updated recently. And it's just a list of company names and some bullet points about what they sell. That's the visibility they had. Wow. And so it, so problem number one was it took, it was hard to get, they had to dig for it. Maybe it wasn't updated. Maybe they didn't have a list. Um, if they didn't have a list, they had to go dig around online and kind of pick through individual websites, all of which display the information differently. That was problem number one. It was hard to get the data. Yeah. The second problem was that the data was incomplete. They wanted more information about the service company. Uh, they wanted to not only find all the companies that do tank fabrication, but they want to see, okay, which ones can do steel tanks versus fiberglass, fiberglass yeah. which ones can do the paint and the coating as well, which ones can do the hydro testing. Wow. They need that level of, of detail and their, their vendor list just didn't provide that level right. of data. Right. And in most cases, the websites of these companies didn't either. Whoa. Either the companies they were looking for didn't have a website <laughs> Or they did, but it wasn't updated for years. And so, and like I said before, each website showcases that company slightly differently. So to compare two or three tank fabricators side by side by looking at their website, it's not easy. And that's what these guys wanted, this list of 100 people that I called. So that was the next step. And once I kind of validated my idea, I just went to work learning how to build the website myself and that's you know that was about five six years ago and like i said it's it's been evolving ever since then wow five six years ago you had a functioning website trunkline.com early 20 or sorry late 2017 is when the website started started yeah late late 2017 how'd you come up with the name trunkline great question great question um it's a, that's a, I've got a story about this. So that's a common term for a pipeline. You're right. But it's, it's like the trunk of a tree, which has branches off of it. Okay. The trunk line is a big pipeline, usually a large diameter that has branches off of it. Those branches might go to different wells or different facilities or different locations. Okay. But the trunk of that pipeline, the main trunk is called the trunk line. And so our name is sort of a, you know, a shout out to that concept that we're trying to be this conduit for the industry to get connected. That was the name, uh, had a hard time getting ownership of that domain. Is that right? Uh, Trunkline.com was already taken. It was, it was taken, but it was for sale. It was available. It wasn't being used. Okay. Uh, and the owner, this was early 2017. The owner wanted twenty two grand. Dang it. For the domain. Twenty two thousand dollars. And I said, no way. Yeah. <laughs> Can't do that. So we got a different domain at first and what kinda, was it called? It was trunkline.co. 
which is which is uh, an alternate extension. You can buy these extensions. Like .com is the most popular extension. Okay. You can get .net, right. .edu, right. .biz, <laughs> .co is one. Um, so we kind of rocked with that for a little while as I simultaneously negotiated with the owner of ah, trunkline.com nice. and over like uh, probably two years, I think exactly. I got him down to the like $2,000 range and <laughs> <laughs> pulled the trigger. The guy so, was holding out, man. He's like, I, yeah, yeah, he was. Wow. Trunkline.com. He wasn't using it for anything. Right. So and you were telling them all about like what you were doing with it and like why you wanted to, you didn't tell no, them any of that. Okay. No. And I don't, I don't know if we had, uh, anything that he would have been able to see at that point, but he never asked. And so I just told him I had a business in Texas, so it worked out, but it was a, it was a long process. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's cool. You're, you're the way you came up with the name, the way you thought about the name is exact. <clears throat> is exactly what you're you built you built it <coughs> golly <laughs> <coughs> what is going on Woo! you built with trunkline.com you built a digital trunk line of oil field services but going back and forth the, it's not the the branches from the trunk line are going to operators and service companies, and you made it really efficient way and an interface for those two end members, the customer and the and the supplier, really service company and the person who needs the service to be able to communicate together right. through this trunk line. Right. And in that community, that that's that's really interesting. The premise all along was two two things: these service companies are not well represented online. Yep. That's a widespread problem. You can see it across the industry. Uh, it's not their fault. It's just that there isn't a really, there wasn't a good technology solution for these companies to get visibility and exposure and do it easily and inexpensively. Right. That was the first problem. They want to get more representation and more exposure. The other problem was the operators need to find and they want as many options as they can for their projects. And so right. the premise was let's just simply connect them on a platform. And that name seemed to fit that model um, and, and the business concept. So we went with it. But uh, the cool thing about the name is it's not just an oil field word, I've learned. Huh. Uh, you can have a trunk line in an electrical circuit or ah. plumbing system or ah. I'm sure other fields of, of construction. So that's cool because our, our ambition is to break out of the oil and gas industry and help connect service companies in wind energy and yeah. solar energy and uh, geothermal and hydroelectric yep. and all the other, you know, industrial construction, all the other uh, heavy industrial sectors. Yep. And so like when you saw... Uh, Something like Craigslist pop up. Hmm. Craigslist is is kind of this platform where you can go and and you type in something like I need a refrigerator, refrigerator or whatever, right? And then all these fridges pop up of people selling them, but you also find people that work on fridges, people that have like hmm. fridge junkyards, like 
right? Fridge magnets. Yeah, yeah you get all kinds Everything. of shit going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you saw something like Craigslist pop up, or was Craigslist any kind of like a, a inspiration, or eBay, or like what? What kind of already thing that was out there inspired the the design and this 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 network that you built? Yeah the the evolution of the internet itself is is a big factor here, hmm. and this is a really interesting concept. Anyone who's really familiar with how the internet developed will tell you that the internet has been through three phases and we're in phase three right now. And we're sort of at the end of phase three. Is that right? And we don't know what phase four is. It's a paradigm shift. Yeah. If there's not a phase, if there's not one already established, then that means there's a paradigm shift coming. I agree. Yeah. So what are the phases? Uh, Phase one, early days of the internet was when... Back before Google, back before Yahoo, there were just these individual websites on the internet scattered around the world, and you couldn't visit any of them unless you knew the exact address of hmm. the website. So back to Best Buy, if, if they were around back then and they had a website, you would have to type in www.bestbuy.com in order to go visit their website. Mm-hmm. That's phase one, because there were no search engines. Mm-hmm. There were just these individual, it was the Wild West. URLs. Just individual URLs. That was phase one. <laughs> Wild the West. Okay, yeah. I'm following. You had to know your destination exactly and type it in word for word in order to get there. That's phase one. Phase two comes along when Google says, this is too difficult. There are all these cool websites out there that, that aren't being discovered. Let's build a search engine and Yahoo did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Let's build a search engine to help people navigate. So kind now of a trunk you, line to URLs. Uh, yes, yes. Except phase three is where it really gets interesting. Okay. But in phase two, now you don't need to know BestBuy.com. You just type in computers in Google, right? Right. And all the Best Buy and Compaq and Dell and all Circuit the rest. City or Circuit, Circuit City. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> They had a they had a jingle that was really popular. <laughs> what was it? I, I don't think remember. it was uh, some '70s song. Uh, I'm not going to try to hum it, but I remember <laughs> it. <laughs> and then they went out of business. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you could you could type into Google. Now it was a lot easier to browse the internet. A lot easier to navigate. You just go to Google and you search, and everything pops yeah. up. That was phase two. Okay. Phase three. <clears throat> is when we got industry-specific search engines. Hmm. These are search engines for particular industries. Not just Google for the whole web. Now we have Expedia, which is just for hotels. And we have Yelp, which is just for restaurants. We have Zillow, which is just for homes. You go to Zillow and you search just for homes. You can't find bikes or boats or, you know... (laughs) <laughs> hotels it's just for homes it's a it's a search engine just for one sector of the economy that's phase three of the internet and i was you know in my early days in the oil field thinking why doesn't the oil field have one of those why doesn't the oil field have its own search engine uh, so that's a long way of answering your question of you know what sort of inspired the idea is is that i saw that there's this gap there isn't a search engine for the biggest industry in the world. And I think there should be one. Yeah. Big time. 
you know, I'm an operator down here, right? I have these little wells, and I'm I'm, I'm hoping to to expand and and keep creating success, mm. buying wells. The information to find who is who sells the tank that you need, who 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 installs the tank that you have. If a well a pump jack, I, I snapped an arm off a pump jack, I got to get it fixed. Who has that? And and you talk to these guys, and they're like, oh, that's old John Adams, you know? That guy, he knows everybody out here. If you need that, that's your guy. You need to call him. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself while you're talking about this is how in the world does, you know, John Adams and his junkyard full of, he knows where everything's at. You call him and you go, hey, I got a 13-inch, you know, left arm on a, on a pump jack, goes to this kind of style, blah, blah, blah. He goes, uh, he knows exactly where it's at. He's got a, He's got the part for it. How could that guy easily get his information on a website like mm. Trunkline? How could he? How could he be? How could he, right? That's how. How do you? How do you plan on doing that? Or do you? What are your thoughts on that? Just photos, photos and videos. We make it easy for anyone who sells a product or a service and can photograph it to share that publicly on the internet. And the way it works is that if you sign up on the website on Trunkline, you get your own page that catalogs all the photos you've ever added. These can be photos of your guys in the field, your guys in the shop, your products in the yard, your tanks, your pipes, your pump jacks, your take a picture of each, upload each of those. Yep. And under whatever the company is, Harrison Supply shop in divine that ha- like everybody knows you go to harrison's you know that's like a common thing go to harrison's mm-hmm. that's it you have to literally go there and walk around to see everything you know i, I go to harrison's like you call them and they're you're on hold because they got 30 guys standing in line so you can't do that right but harrison somebody at harrison's can go around take pictures of everything compartmentalize the store and their then su- their services and supplies put it up on trunk line and bang now they have a, a basically their own website Without having the website fees and all that other stuff, just use Trunkline to supply the whole South Texas area. Yep. Yep. And huh. <clears throat> yeah, so it's, we call it a portfolio. It's a collection of everything you offer. And it can be, again, for services or for products. As long as it can be photographed, <clears throat> you can build a portfolio of it on Trunkline. And that comes in handy when someone who doesn't yet know about your company wants to know more and maybe they reach out to you and they say hey what do you offer what are your capabilities you can send them to your trunk line page right that's been maintained by you and your staff not some outside marketing or web development firm and that page on trunk line has everything you've ever posted all in one nice organized place so if so, I'm gonna go out to this guy's junkyard most likely, and and talk to him, right? And I want to say I want to say, hey, you know, I, have you heard of Trunkline or sign up for Trunkline, right? I want to talk mm-hmm. to him about get your get everything you have here out on a platform because anybody else ask me, I'm gonna say go here, you know, so they don't have to call you and 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 right? They yeah. Uh, so okay, so let's let's go through that hypothetically. I go, hey. Uh, there's a thing called trunk line. Have you heard of this? He's going to go, no, what is that? 
I go, oh, here's the concept of a trunk line. No, I'm just kidding. I'll just say, you know, you have all this stuff. You have all this equipment. You have all this supply. You have all this information. Put it up there on trunk line. Put, just put your company. Sign in as your company. It's right. free to do that, to sign in and create a company, basically, and start creating a portfolio where they can put things and show what they, they do, uh, what they have, right? Exactly. That's free. Yes. Then the next stage is a, is, is a $100 membership for that same person to continue to put things on their web on, on their page in their portfolio but the $100 a month gives them what what else comes with that yeah so in addition to the portfolio feature that's free for any company we have different pricing plans that gradually increase depending on how much marketing push they want from our team those are optional if they have their own marketing firm that's great if they want us to help promote their products and promote their services through social media, through our email newsletter that goes out to um, oil field operators and project managers, then we do that for a fee and we can help them really perfect their content on Trunkline and get it out to the, to the broader industry uh, in a variety of different ways. So we have different plans that we offer yep. for, for those companies. but. What I would say to any company considering joining Trunkline is you've got to realize how this industry is changing, uh, not primarily because of COVID, but partly because of COVID. One of the big pivots that's happening right now is the industry is getting uh, more tech savvy. Again, this is partly due to COVID. We're all working remote. We're all uh, many of us who manage wells or manage facilities are not managing them from the same state mm -hmm. that the facilities or the wells are in. There are guys in Houston managing Permian assets. There are guys in Dallas managing Bakken assets. So everyone's more remote. Everyone's more receptive to the internet and more dependent on the internet now. Yeah. And the other factor is that the industry is getting younger. So there are younger guys and gals coming in, uh, who, like I mentioned earlier, grew up with the internet. They use the internet for everything. Yeah. Shopping, leisure, you name it, entertainment. And they are, I think, positioned to first look for your company or your services online. That's the first place they're going to look. And if, you know, if you're not represented online very well right now, you're missing out on a pretty big opportunity that's only going to get bigger and bigger. And so I, I, I encourage every company to at least get a portfolio built mm -hmm. um, either on Trunkline or on their own website or both um, just to start showcasing what they have and yeah. what they offer um, because that's, that's the best way for these operators to understand what they offer. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. Okay. So the, uh, the, What's the difference between the $100 plan and the second stage and the third stage? What, what, what's the breakdown between the three of them? So we, uh, we have an email newsletter that goes out to roughly 5,000 different operators. And that is available on the, lo on the lowest plan. Okay. Um, we also optimize their content that they put on Trunkline for the internet at large. We make the content that's posted on Trunkline easier to find on other search engines like Google. So when you post a project of work you've done in the field, for example, on Trunkline, that 
post becomes a result that can be found in Google mm. and Yahoo and the other search engines. And we help them optimize that content so it appears higher in the list. Um, so that's kind of the basic plan. Okay. Moving up from there, we offer LinkedIn marketing, Facebook marketing, Instagram, um, Twitter, and other sort of digital marketing uh, packages. Okay. As well. So it's, it's kind of dependent on what they want, what they need, what they don't yeah. have covered already. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's cool. It's interesting. The, uh, the boost in marketing, you know, what is, what's the difference in marketing and sales in your opinion? That kind of depends on the industry. I think, uh, marketing, I've always, I've always thought of marketing more as awareness <clears throat> of your brand. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit more passive than sales. It's a constant reminder that you're there, you exist. Yep. Here's our logo. Here's what we offer. Um, but it's, you know, you can get into marketing strategies and there's all different kinds of types of marketing, but in general it's more passive. Um, and it's for awareness only sales is, is more active. Yeah. And sales is when you, you know, make contact with a customer, and try to close the deal. And it's, it's in that moment that you hope your marketing has done its job and created that awareness for that customer. So you're not walking in to a customer that's completely oblivious to your company. Mm -hmm. and hopefully they've seen your marketing. They're aware that you exist. And now it's the, the function of the sales team to get it across the finish line. Yeah. So you have a newsletter for information and new projects. You have, uh, is it SEO? That's the optimization stuff. Search engine optimization. Yep. Search SEO. engine optimization. Right. And then a full blown marketing team that goes to work to, to really get it out there that you are the pump jack provider of South Texas or whatever the right. area is, whatever your story is, whatever you're trying to brand out there. Right. Yeah. I think that, uh, one observation I've made about many oil field service companies on social media uh, first, many of them don't have the time or the know-how or the interest in doing social media. And I understand that it can be, it can be a lot of work for no apparent, um, effect on yeah. your bottom line. Yeah. And we take a different approach that I think is a lot more powerful and a lot more effective, which is we don't really highlight anything about the company accept their projects. We highlight their work, their track record, the things they've actually produced, the pipelines they've built, the tanks they fabricated, mm -hmm. the compressors they built, the wells they drilled, whatever service they offer, we highlight photos of that thing because that's what the operators want to see. Right. They don't necessarily, when the operator is in the buying mindset and they're looking for a company, there's a lot of clutter on social media that they won't pay any attention to. And so we, we don't focus on pushing or creating or promoting any of that sort of, uh, non, uh, work related content. We focus on pushing the things about these service companies that operators really want to see. Right. The, uh, ah, we were just talking about that on the phone. What was the, uh, the term? Um, it's not going to be on the show, obviously, but it's the, 
uh, on the phone. Yeah, oh, on this phone call. Not. Yeah, with Michaela and, and A Train. It's it's a. Uh, <sighs> da, 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 da. Yep, I don't have it written down. Maybe she texted us. Let's see. Yeah, I think she did. I think she did say it in the last. Line of that text. Effective marketing. Effective. More than social media. Effective. Effective. That was it. Right. It was the the term effective in in front of what we're doing. Like there's marketing, but then there's effective marketing. There's sales. There are effective sales. Um, Your product, what you sell, and what you do, and getting your message across. You know, there's an you need to be effective at getting that message across. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of this stuff is is lost in the noise. Yeah. You know, you think, yeah, there's just you're just swallowed up and it's overwhelming, and and then you you just revert revert back to before social media, and it's like word of mouth, and I'm just gonna keep doing my work, and I'm gonna pick up my phone, and and it's just like they just miss it, you right. know. But if you're effective with your message, and then I think you have trunk line that's there to help you stay there and the marketing and your awareness is constantly out there because you're, you're paying for that, right? You're putting your projects on there. You're getting the SEO, you're getting optimized search engine stuff. So when someone looks in San Antonio or wherever you're at for something, your name's popping up because your project talked about a tank battery, your project talked about replacing pipe or drilling a new well. Bingo. Yep. You're popping up so that, that's being a, that's effective marketing right there. Something I tell every company that joins Trunkline is that if you're posting your projects or your photos or any content on social media, and I'll specifically talk about LinkedIn because there's a big oil field community on LinkedIn right now. If you're posting on LinkedIn, your post is relevant for maybe a few hours yeah, and then it's gone. It's not gone, but it's buried. It's effectively erased from everyone's memory because it's so deep in the feed that everyone else's post piled on top of it and yours is gone. So the work you put into making that post, it has a very short shelf life. Yeah. And I think that's really ineffective for you and for your customers. The, the reality is that you might make a post about your oil field services on a Monday at noon, yep. but your customer is not looking for your services until next Tuesday at five. Yeah. By then your post is gone. Yep. And if, you know, if they go to LinkedIn, which I don't think they are going to LinkedIn to search for services when they need it. But if the operator does go to LinkedIn, they're not going to see your post. They need a search engine where at any time, on their time, they can search for what they need Man. and your posts come up. So that's what, that's the difference with Trunkline. It's a search engine, not another social media platform. And we, we help you preserve your content so that it can be found and refound and refound yeah. over and over and over again. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's a critical difference between what we do and what social media does. So we, we basically use our platform to preserve the data and give these operators a, a tool to search on. And we also then use social media to promote it. So we use both. We're not completely abandoning social media, but we believe that the content should be archived 
and preserved on trunk line yeah so that it can be shared and and searched yeah yeah well that's that and that's how podcasts is uh is mm. is is saved right it's it if it, the podcast if it was not for the website pbpodcast.com that created an rss feed every time i upload the audio then spotify itunes iHeartRadios, all these podcast playing platforms wouldn't have a place to pull that right and play it for their users right so you you got to have a fundamental you got to have a trunk line you have to have a trunk line if you have a business you have to have a trunk line it's yeah you got to be on the search engine i think if you want to get yeah discovered you don't know who's searching for your <clears throat> products or your services and more importantly you don't know when they're yeah, searching that's a big one when 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 are all these people listening to these shows when are all these people yeah yeah when are they actually searching for for what you do and and what they need and so if you're posting on linkedin you're throwing a dart against the dartboard in the dark i think because you don't know you might get some engagement sure certainly you'll get likes and comments but there's just such a bigger audience of operators out there who might need your services just not at that moment that's good just yeah. later two months yeah. two years from now yeah and and just like i can search for a hotel by marriott that was added to expedia 10 years ago i want to be able to search for that tank company yep. on trunkline that added their tank projects two years ago or whatever Back trucks oil oh, hauling yeah. companies i mean there's so many workover rigs pull rigs winch trucks there's so much stuff out there that's, man, it's, yeah. Think hey. about the facilities side. That's, you know, that's a very select part of this industry that, that where there's a lot of vendor activity. Uh, and a lot of different companies have to come together to build even the smallest tank battery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know the number exactly, but I would guess for your average well pad tank battery with, six tanks and maybe a few pumps and a containment, some pipes and valves. There's got to be at least a hundred different vendors that come together. Dirt work, engineering, uh, all the piping, the coating, the inspection. Like if you extrapolate over the whole supply chain, just to put a tank battery together, there's a lot of companies and someone on the operator side has to find all those companies, Mm -hmm. bid out the work, evaluate them side by side and so we we just make that a whole lot easier um if you're building something bigger like a gas plant it becomes even more helpful so well what's interesting to me and i want to pass it back to you obviously on this one is what you what you what you found is a problem you've built a solution so you 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 know the problem and you now have built tools to solve this problem but there's still thousands of companies that have not signed up for Trunkline. And there's, there, so there's a guy out there, and there's the reality of, all right, there's six of us in a room. We're getting paid to figure this out. And, and, and they're just not getting it. None of them are sitting there taking a step back going, I wonder if there's a service out there that 
has done all this research and work and, and put all these services company, you know, companies together. Because when you, when you create the jobs, hey, I'm building a tank battery, and you're, you're talking to the tank guy, the guy that's supplying the tank, mm. he's going to know who can build the retainment wall. He's going to know of a guy that can do the piping. He, and then all of a sudden you're just going, oh, man, I found a guy who knows all the guys. Yeah. And so there's, if that's the reality, then how are you at Trunkline, and how, how, do you, how are you getting uh, the industry to engage in Trunkline and take the time to build and put effort into you know, building this portfolio for, for all of us to, to be able to engage and integrate and you know, do good work and find the right people in this industry? It's very, very important what you're building. How do we build it faster? Well, the secret is understanding how operators select vendors. And the way we do it, from my experience, is we look at the company's track record. When we're looking at three different service companies to build a pipeline, and they all say that they do pipeline construction, Mm -hmm. and they say we can all do the welding, we all have the equipment, and we all have the manpower, that's nice. But what would be a lot nicer is to see their track record, to see the experience rather than just take their word for it or read it on a one page flyer. Right. Uh, what would be nice, and, and many times we do this manually, is we want to get a feel for their actual track record. We want to see how many projects have you done? How many pipelines have you done? How many large yeah. diameter pipelines? How many steel pipelines? And in a lot of cases, operators will even physically go out to a service company's shop or to a facility they built or a pipeline they built in the past. Check it out. To check it out, to put their eyes on it and say, okay, that's the quality that I need. This is great. Or no, this doesn't look good. We need to, you know, shore this up and, you know, what. So operators make their, their, their service company hiring decisions based yep. on track record. Yep. The problem is it's not easy to find a company's track record. Right. And so that's, that's what we're doing. We are letting these service companies showcase and broadcast what they're proud of, all their project achievements, all the accomplishments that they've made over the years yeah. in the industry visually through photos. And by doing that, it gives the operators what they want. And so if you're an operator, you can go to Trunkline, find a service company, and look at all the projects they've ever done. Right. All in one place. And I think that's the key. I think that's, that's a lot more important than just a, a static list of companies. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's really what drives these buying decisions. Uh, talk to me about free social media marketing. Free social media marketing. Yep. So we recycle the posts on Trunkline on our social media pages. Trunkline has a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page, Instagram page, and we're constantly taking content that our vendors post on Trunkline for free and recycling it, sharing it, promoting it on our social media and getting a lot of engagement, getting a lot of people to, to find out about Trunkline and then go over and view the work posted by these service companies. So it's, it's a neat little sort of free service that we add on, um, just to get more engagement and drive more traffic. Yep. Yep. Right on. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the completion part of the show. 
completion part of the show, PB Podcast with Joseph Crasta. Mm-hmm. Uh, the man, the myth, and the legend behind Trunk Line and legendary oil field socks. <laughs> Let's talk about these freaking socks, man. Completion part of the segment. Start with the socks. How? Who designed them? How did you get these made? They're made in America. Right. Uh, it's all about proudly supporting the American in, uh, uh, independence, uh, right? American energy independence. Yep. Talk to me about these socks. These are, uh, these are a design that my team and I came up with a few years back. Uh, they are depicting a horizontal well and a frack job. Um, and people love them. We've uh, sold them all over the country all over the world. Um, you can buy them on trunk lines still. They just represent, uh, you know, a unique, uh, part of our industry. That's, you know, very recognizable, makes everyone proud of what we do. Really cool technology. And, uh, you know, we, we strive to connect the industry. And so that's kind of where that, that catch line phrase comes from. We're promoting American energy independence by trying to connect the operators, trying to make their jobs easier trying to make uh, things more efficient for the service companies that are doing the work out there. And it says, find oil field vendors for any project, trunkline.com. That's the mission. Yep. Should be able to go search on Trunkline for anything you need, service or product related, and not only find who provides it, but see their track record and see their work experience all in one place. That's a hell of an idea. That's a good idea with the socks. I was, uh, you know, you got to this platform that's a real thing, but then at the same time you're developing and you, you made like super legit entertaining, you know, dress socks. It's, yeah. Do you know how Airbnb funded their company in no. the early days? Cool story similar to this. And this wasn't deliberate, but it's, it's funny how this worked out. Uh, and this is a well-known story about Airbnb. They had this crazy idea to let strangers open up their homes and let other strangers in right. to rent rooms, right? That was crazy. That was a foreign concept in the early days, and they couldn't get any funding. They talked to investors. 10 out of 10 said no. Yeah. Uh, so the founders of Airbnb were uh, trying to launch their company around the time that the Democratic um, convention was happening. I believe it was in Denver. Okay. It was Obama versus McCain. Okay. And they had this crazy idea. The founders of Airbnb made cereal boxes that were themed for the democratic con- uh, convention in Denver. One was for Obama and one was for McCain. They had these like themed cereal boxes and they tell the story better than this, but they sold those cereal boxes as collectibles. What? During the convention. What? And raised a ton of money. Wow. Had nothing to do with Airbnb, <laughs> but <laughs> that's how they funded their company. Wow. In the early days. They yeah. printed cereal boxes, filled it with some generic cereal from the store. No way. Um, so it, when I look at the socks, that's the story I'm reminded of. It's similar in the fact that we didn't really start the company to sell socks. Right. We stumbled upon this design and people liked it. Yeah. This was never our intent, but it complements our business really well. Yeah. Now. It does. And I think getting those socks in front of these uh, conventions like oil and gas 
energy conventions. Good idea. The engineering, the geology stuff, the landman stuff, like the uh, the oil show in, in, in Odessa. I mean, what a great place to have a, a whole stand of these things and a QR code that's just, you know, you want a pair? Yeah. Buy them. I was shocked how big the market is for oil field themed socks. I did not, I had no idea it was huge <laughs> or as big as it is, but it's global. Yeah. Well, speaking of a global, you have, do you have global users on Trunkline or is it only US based? We, we aren't really strict about this, but we try to keep it to the North America vendors only. So okay. United States and Canada, and we have a few outside of that domain, but, uh, once you get outside of North America, the industry is a little bit different. Hmm. And right now we want to focus on North America and get this market um, figured out and established on Trunkline before we branch out. So that's, that's where we are right now. That could always change. Yeah. Where do you see it in the next five to 10 years? What do you, th what do you think Trunkline is going to be doing? A household uh, name? You know, you think it's going to be recognized by uh, by the operators and and these this next generation that's certainly seems to be uh rising up and and ready to take controls and yeah keep this industry going keep these operators going like you talked about like it's it's changing you know the yeah. things are different and a new generation is in um where do you see it what five ten years i think there's a big opportunity for service companies in the fact that there are all these alternative forms of energy that are becoming popular and getting a lot of interest and a lot of funding, not only from the government, but private entities as well. And there, there are opportunities for service companies to step outside of the industry that they've known and do work in these other adjacent industries like wind and solar. And so we would like to cover those markets as well and put the service companies that join Trunkline in touch with other sectors, operators in other sectors of the economy, yeah. doing other infrastructure projects, so that these service companies can have a more diversified, more stabilized, yeah. bigger pool of customers. Um, on the flip side, for the investors in these projects and the operators of these projects, a bigger network of vendors and a tool that lets you evaluate them more thoroughly than ever before is a really, really powerful tool for reducing risk on your project. Nice. And in terms of procurement, reducing the uncertainty um, behind the vendors you're hiring. And so that's, that's where we see it going. The more data, the more users, the more projects these companies can post, the more valuable it is for both sides. I really believe that. And as we expand outside of oil um, to all the adjacent industries, I think that that value gets stronger for both sides. Right on. Cool, man. Yeah. So just uh, get, keeping, keeping uh, your head down, keeping the word out. Are, uh, there's not much more development as far as the functionality the website page does, is Correct. there? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty. You saw you have a solid product. The design is locked. As they the say. design yeah. is locked. Yeah, and uh, and now you're just getting it out there, getting more users. That's right. Yep. I think that uh, any company that doesn't have a portfolio needs to really seriously consider getting one. Yeah. Whether on Trunkline or their own website or both. The fundamental question I have for every operator I'm going to meet and, and know is what are you using for your trunk line? Like what, what is your trunk line? And they're mm -hmm. going to go, 
what are you talking about? And I'm going, how are you connected to everybody that's doing this business in the area? Great question. That is such a good question. The answer is word of mouth. For operators, the answer is word of mouth. That's, that's the crazy, best way. right? Yeah. Doesn't that seem barbaric? That's the meeting of six engineers that I was in in 2013. It was, and it's still that way. It's still. It's that, just. I mean. Yeah. There's I, something going on there. Is it a psych? It's a psychology thing. It's just the reality of like. Uh, you, I got. Yeah. I have theories about it. I mean, the industry historically has been really tight close-knit, yeah. localized, uh, sort of you've got your inner circle of guys and right. that's, that's all you need. But that's changing because of the factors I mentioned. The industry's getting younger. It's getting more remote. Technology's breaking in in all different other areas. Uh, so I think, you know, the application for the internet to supplement the inner circle sort of thing is becoming more and more prominent. That's one theory. Um, the other theory is that, you know, historically the oil price has been, you know, much more healthy than it has in the recent past. It's been very volatile in my career. And that means that there's, on the operator side, there's more of a need to uh, bid projects out, get right. the bottom dollar, drive competition, make sure you're getting the best company than maybe there was in the past. So, I think that's another another really good opportunity for Trunkline to fit in and help these operators find more options and better pricing, better schedule, better quality, whatever the case may be. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's definitely real. I remember being in the uh, in the position I was in, and and I was told like, "Hey, go talk to as many people in this part of the business that you can." Like, we have who we know. Right. They've yeah. been in the business their whole the CEO is telling me, you know, 40 years in, he knows who he wants to use. He knows who he's looking for. But he was kind of, you know, letting the reins go a little bit and go, go, go see who you can find. Go build that competition. Go, you know, evaluate and, and learn because that's how you learn. Yeah. Right. That's how you really learn is when you go out and you get to talk to these people that they you do it all the time. You know, I'm looking for someone. I, I don't have much experience, but I'm in the position to pick someone. So I have the money to spend and I want to learn my thing was always, I want to, I want to find a good teacher. That's who I'm going to, you know, really invest in, um, their track record and all that stuff. I didn't know enough about it, but I, if I, if I really learn from them and I feel confident that, you know, they really know what they're talking about and they're good at teaching, you know, and yeah. they, they take time, they sit there and take their time and make sure you have any more questions. You know, is there anything else, you know? Like I really, mm. that's how I really thought about it uh, when I was looking for who I'm going to hire as, as an operator um, when we were doing our thing in the Permian. So yeah, dude, I think trunk line is such a wonderful idea and, 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 and you got the functionality of it too. So I'm, I'm definitely the here in South Texas, it's definitely smaller backwoodsy type deal. Right. And you talk to people and, and they all know the inner, you know, who does what they all know. But as I'm learning and I'm, I'm getting to use them and I'm saying, hey, this is the job I need, I'm definitely going to start telling them, do you, know, do you know what Trunkline is? Or can I help you get signed up with Trunkline? Just do the free version even. Get a portfolio going so I can it's, – it's selfish almost of why I'm saying this to them. Yeah. But it's because I know I'm going to need it again. 
And I know that there's going to be more people out there that are trying to build successful companies and rebuild this, mm. this part of the industry of good, steady production. You know, that, that we need that. We need to know who's out there doing what without yeah. having a call and, and know the guy, just happen to know the guy who knows the guy. Or remember it. Yeah. yeah. Remember it. Yeah. The, we are not a substitute for relationships. We don't, we don't want to make that claim. Trunkline is not aiming to replace in-person face-to-face relationships. That, that's the best way. That's still essential. We still need that. And you should have relationships with all your vendors and, right. and strengthen those as much as you can. But, but the way operators are incentivized is to successfully complete projects on time and under budget. And to do that, you have to bid out projects. You have to get multiple options. Um, you can't always go with the same person. Maybe they're not available. Maybe they're too expensive. Yeah. There's many reasons why it's in your best interest as an operator to have more than one provider for your commonly used services and products. So we're just, we're just kind of the tinder for the oil field in that respect. We're just helping you find other options. Yeah. Find, helping you match with other potential companies. And it's up to you to, to start the relationship if you feel that's you know, necessary. Nice. But having the optionality is, is, I think, what's missing. Man. Well, that was cool. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time, meeting up, doing the podcast, talking about Trunkline, you know, the generation of it, all your different ideas along the way, how you made it. Um, I learned a lot from you today, man. I appreciate it. It was great. Yeah, I love talking about it.